are rolling. Be your welcome meal. Manufacturing Descent. Since 1996, this is hell on this week's hell. Our This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show hangover continues as we are showing our appreciation for our listeners by, like last week, having listener-suggested guests on this week's show. This week, we're talking to the writer, director, and filmmaker of everybody's current favorite anti-capitalist science fiction comedy movie. Think about that. Everyone's favorite anti-capitalist science fiction comedy movie that's in the theaters right now. There's also a red-green revolution taking place, and no, I'm not talking about that horrible Canadian comedy show your grandparents watched on PBS, but an eco-socialist revolution. Being black and being trans have a lot more in common than you think, and those commonalities can reveal to us the flexibility of terms we use to exclude. A new prostitution ordinance in Chicago resembles anti-prostitution ordinances across the country that even anti-trafficking groups oppose. Jeff Dorton will be delivering a moment of truth, which I will be telling you about in a moment. And I will tell you how I got all radicalized. That's all during this week's live four-hour edition of This Is Hell. Our first guest this week is rapper, producer, screenwriter, film director, and activist Boots Riley, who wrote and directed the movie Sorry to Bother You. Unbelievably, an anti-capitalist science fiction comedy is playing in nearly a thousand movie theaters across the U.S., and it's getting rave reviews. Life is meaningless for Cassius Cash Green, and he needs work, so he gets one of those crappy telemarketing jobs that it seems we've all had. In that horribly intrusive line of work, Cash finds true meaning, and the true meaning the real face of capitalism Chase finds is horrifying. Cash, not Chase. Cash, why did I get chased there? Uh, so, how can that kind of movie be funny? I don't know. But it's hilarious, and its criticism of capitalism is jarringly scathing. Boots is the lead vocalist of The Coup and Street Sweeper Social Club. Sorry to Bother You is showing up here in Evanston on Maple at the Century, at the Logan in Logan Square, and elsewhere in the Chicago area. Go online to find your local theater's showtimes of Sorry to Bother You. Find out more at sorrytobotheryou.movie. We want to thank listeners Ben and Mark for suggesting Boots be on our show, and because we actually got Ben's and Mark's suggested guest on the air, as soon as we get Ben's and Mark's mailing addresses, we will be sending them some This Is Hell subvertising stickers for suggesting Boots Riley. Following our talk with Boots on capitalism and his critique of our culture, our guest will be Victor Wallace, author of Red Green Revolution, The Politics and Technology of Eco-Socialism. That's right. 
eco-socialism. It's environmentally friendly and democratic too, without all the inequality and inadequate public service. It's eco-socialism and it's coming to a town near you. Or at least let's hope it is because eco-socialism may be the only way we can mitigate the worst aspects of climate change. Sure, we said the same thing about localization last month when we spoke with award-winning new economy movement pioneer Helena Norberg-Hodge. But as we will learn, the two, localization and eco-socialism, go very much hand-in-hand. While localization stresses working within your own local community and being cognizant of where your money is going and when it's leaving your community for elsewhere, eco-socialism insists you make all those decisions based upon their impact on the environment locally and worldwide. We'll find out what eco-socialism is all about when we hear from Victor, who is a professor of liberal arts at the Berklee College of Music. We want to thank listener Tom again for suggesting a guest on our show. That's three guests in the last two weeks suggested by Tom, but it's not for a lack of suggestions from other listeners. It's because Tom suggests really good guests. So now I owe Tom even more. This is how advertising stickers. After our discussion with Victor on eco-socialism, we'll go to the intersection of blackness and transness when we talk to C. Riley Snorton, author of the award-winning book, Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity. We'll learn from Riley that there is an interconnectivity between blackness and transness throughout life and sadly often into tragic death as both are invented caste categories that are always being redefined and their histories regrettably erased. We want to thank both Madeline and Jack for suggesting Riley as a guest on this week's show. For suggesting Riley, Madeline and Jack will also be receiving This Is Hell's advertising stickers. Riley's book, Black on Both Sides, won the Lambda Literary Award for Transgender Nonfiction and was named an American Library Association Stonewall Honor Book. Riley is Associate Professor of Africana Studies, Africana Studies and Feminist Gender and Sexuality Studies at Cornell University and Visiting Associate Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. We'll begin our fourth and final hour of this week's This Is Hell by speaking with attorney Andrea J. Ritchie, who is the co-author with community organizer Britt Schulte of the Truthout.com article, Prostitution-Related Loitering Ordinance Promotes Racial Profiling in Chicago. There have been a litany of gang and drug-related loitering laws, stop-and-frisk ordinances, and anti-prostitution acts put into place across the country that have proven to be unconstitutional, and only after lawsuit after lawsuit were they finally abandoned, but not after many innocent people were victimized. Well, it's happening again, apparently, and this time it's in Chicago as a new law targeting sex workers will likely further criminalize transgender women and women of color and increase the likelihood of reports of police abuse. We'll figure out the whole new law when we discuss it with Andrea, who is a black lesbian immigrant, a police misconduct attorney, and a 2014 senior Soros Justice Fellow with more than two decades of experience advocating against police violence and the criminalization of women and LGBTQ people of color. Andrea is currently researcher in residence on race, gender, sexuality, and criminalization at the Barnard Center for Research on Women. Andrea's latest book is Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell with a moment of truth, where Jeff Dorchin ponders outliving his own usefulness. So on this week's show, to recap, we're talking to the writer, director, and filmmaker of everyone's favorite anti-capitalist science fiction comedy. 
there is a red green revolution taking place. And no, I'm not talking about that horrible Canadian comedy show, but eco socialism. Being black and being trans have a lot more in common than you think. A new prostitution ordinance in Chicago resembles anti prostitution ordinances across the country that even anti trafficking groups oppose. Jeff ponders outliving his own usefulness. And I'll tell you how I got all radicalized. That Stuff plus rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and showing, sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to Twist Off Knowledge. We'll tell you what's going on on our Patreon podcast and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. This week's question from hell is, what will be the final vape flavor? What will be the final vape flavor? All replies get read on air during the third hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins the new This Is Hell tote bag which you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Or if you drop by tomorrow during gallery hours at Second Story Studios, above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. You can also check out all our swag in the art show every Wednesday evening during This Is Hell office hours, which is at the studio and Carrie's Lounge as well. Again, gallery hours are continuing with the This Is Art show that we put up last weekend. This weekend from 3 to 6 p.m. on today, Saturday, and tomorrow, Sunday. I'll be there tomorrow from 3 to 6 p.m. So if you want to drop by and check out the art and join me and look at all of our swag, come by tomorrow from 3 to 6 p.m. Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Again, the question from hell is, what will be the final vape flavor? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? I'm just really mad you stepped on my red-green joke I was going to make. Oh, I, dude, as soon as I saw that uh, title about three months ago, four months ago, when it was sent to us, it was the first thing that came into my mind. God, I hated that show. I really, really hated that show. Worse than the Beachcombers. This is Hell is broadcast live without interruption on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago's Sound Experiment. Streaming live online at our website, thisishell.com. Podcast shortly after at the same place, thisishell.com. Now airing an abbreviated one-hour version on Sunday mornings in Moscow, Idaho, on KRFP Radio Free Moscow, and on Lumpen Radio on Chicago's South Side. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. Wait, Leo wanted to say something. I know. I totally forgot to say hello to Leo. Leo, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. But uh, So I, I, I only have one thing to say. I encourage everyone out there to go on YouTube and look up the work of Dr. Stephen Greer. Stephen Greer. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to go too much into it. I want to be mysterious, but uh, I think everyone will uh, will appreciate what he has to say. Everyone needs to hear what he has to say. How do you spell Greer? G R E E R. Okay, Stephen Greer. All mm-hmm. right, I'll look it up and let's see if we can get some reaction from people. Thank you, on, Chuck. On here's Twitter. here's Alex. Uh, all right, Alex. What's this week's hangover cure? This week's hangover cure is. Uh, turn Leo's mic off. Vodka socks. <laughs> According to an article from late last month at the British tabloid, the Daily Star's website that ran with the headline, England versus Belgium hangover cures. These tips will sort out your World Cup headache. A hangover cure in Estonia is something called vodka socks. The Daily Star reports a barmy sounding cure from the Baltic nation involves soaking socks in vodka and water, covering them with another pair of socks. Oh, on your feet, I suppose. And then retiring to bed with a nice cup of tea. 
The idea is that you sweat out the toxins through your socks that are underneath other socks that are soaked <laughs> in vodka. That makes this week's Hangover Cure Vodka Socks. Vodka Socks. That band is awesome. Awesome. I love that band, Vodka Socks. They always entertain me. Their polkas, amazing. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. Seriously, prove us wrong. Email me, chuck at thisishell.com. Tell me why This Is Hell is not God's favorite radio show. And if it's not us, then who? I've been radicalized. It's actually quite easy to do. You don't have to work at it at all, really. It just kind of happens when you least expect it. Suddenly you're like, hey, this is really unfair. How come some people have the right and privilege to do this, that, or the other thing, but I don't? And the more often that happens, the more radical you become. It's, it's really quite easy. So you ever wonder why the most radical writers are so often people of color? They've been radicalized by not only their lifetime of discrimination, but all the lifetimes of racial discrimination that have come before them and has victimized their family for generations, which radicalized their parents and their grandparents before them and their great-great-grandparents before that. Want to get real radical? Then read the work of black women. Not only is the racism they face radicalizing them, but throw in misogyny, and you are definitely going to be radicalized. Ever wonder how Harriet Tubman got the courage to help with the Underground Railroad, risking her very life? Well, when people treat you like dirt and everyone who looks like you like dirt, you'll get pretty damn radicalized pretty damn fast. And look who's leading the Black Lives Matter movement. Queer black women. The co-founders are Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza, both identifying as queer women and both of whom we really want on This Is Hell. So if you can help us with that, This Is Hell listeners, like you did with helping us get Boots Riley on this week's show, we'd really appreciate it. Again, that's Black Lives Matter's co-founders, Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza. Bug them to be on This Is Hell. But not only do queer black women have to put up with the racism and misogyny, there's also the homophobia. You throw that many discriminations at someone and damn straight they're going to be radicalized. But you really want to ensure being radicalized? How about being a queer woman of color who is also disabled? That's Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samar Asina. And in May, she wrote at truthout.com that she is the product of some wild, disabled, black and brown queer revolutionary dreaming. And I'm dedicated to dreaming more sick and disabled queer brown femme dreams in 2018. Now that's freaking radical. If you are a member of enough marginalized groups, categories that are excluded from the rights and privileges those who do not belong to those groups enjoy, you're damn well right your ass is going to be radicalized. If you're not in those groups, maybe you won't get radicalized. Maybe the system is working well for you. It's supposed to. That's how the damn thing was built to begin with, to privilege those who are not on any of the margins or even close to the edges. As a white dude, I do know and understand white privilege, and it's awesome in its power to keep the keep me out of trouble, especially out of jail. I know well how well those within all the margins have it. Drinking a beer on your front lawn and the cop just drives right by. Reeking of weed and the cop rides his bicycle right by you. Answering the door while reeking of weed and the cop apologizes for bothering you. Stumbling home drunk and reeking of weed, forcing a cop out of the crosswalk and then joking about his gun. I've enjoyed white male privilege, so I know what that's like. But I'm also disabled, and to some lesser extent, I live with that double consciousness that so many 
who live outside at least one of the margins live lives with, uh, thinks with every day. As C. Riley Mort or C. Riley Snorton quotes W. E. B. Du Bois, writing about his this double consciousness, it is a peculiar sensation of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape measure of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. At all times being judged with condescension from others, looking down on me as if I was less human than they are, I can see in their faces as they turn away from, turn away from staring, I can feel them feeling bad, and I imagine them thinking, Maybe, just maybe, this visually impaired guy can make me feel good about myself for the rest of the day if I do him some good deed. That should make up for all the cruelties I've perpetrated upon the world today at my job. Hmm. Maybe I can just write a check or give him a buck or two. Eh, he's getting off the bus. You know, that's the kind of person who could really, really use my help. That's the double consciousness, as Du Bois called it, the expression of two souls, two thoughts, and two unreconciled strivings that happen within the marginalized, within the marginalized like me. And that's what radicalizes, being excluded, not being allowed to enjoy the rights and privileges of other, not others, not being free from the contempt and pit, pity of the privileged whose tables are unfairly slanted toward them. So all society's chips fall into their laps with the ease and certainty of gravity. When you witness every day that the unwritten rules are clearly written against you and your kind, you definitely get radicalized. Hey, reactionaries, if you don't want a bunch of radicals running around starting revolutions, it's pretty easy. Be inclusive and let them under your big tent. Include them in all your reindeer games. Bring them all in, and that way none of those troublemakers and rabble-rousers will be making trouble or rousing rabble. Sure, it may sound like cynical co-optation, but is it really co-optation when suddenly everyone, no matter their race, gender identity, ethnicity, or whatever category you come up with to put them within the other, is it really co-optation when everyone has the same equal rights and privileges making the system fair for each and every one of us individually and all of us co collectively? If that's co-optation, then co-opt the hell out of me. You want to know what radicalized me? Being blind is what radicalized me, but I didn't do it. You did. You make me different. You exclude me. You radicalized me. And this is hell. If you missed last Saturday's anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show and you want to see the This Is Hell art show called This Is Art, drop by any Saturday or Sunday from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Check out the art upstairs in Second Story Studios. That's the This Is Art art show with open gallery hours every Saturday and Sunday from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. through Sunday, September 2nd, when we will be having the This Is Art closing party. This week's question from hell is, what will be the final vape flavor? What will be the final vape flavor? All replies are read on air during the third hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins the new This Is Hell tote bag, which you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support, or if you drop by tomorrow during gallery hours or today at Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. You can also check out the, our swag and the art show every Wednesday evening through September 2nd during This Is Hell office hours, which is at the studio and Carrie's Lounge as well. 
Again, the question from Elle is, what will be the final vape flavor? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. I had a fantastic time at last week, last Saturday's anniversary party, listener appreciation party, art show. Uh, the bands were fantastic. Vivian Garcia. We've always asked the people who book the bands to only have instrumentalists playing because we were afraid that somebody who is a vocalist would not like the party atmosphere where everybody's having a conversation and this is how listeners are getting to meet each other for the very first time. So we weren't certain if a vocalist would work. Vivian Garcia not only worked, she worked exceptionally. She commanded the room. It was really really incredible music that Vivian put on. So I want to thank Vivian Garcia, Ted Sirota, Dan Chase. I want to thank everybody, Abraham Mellish, everybody, uh, Chris Paquette, all the musicians who were there last week. I really appreciate you guys being there. It made the night fantastic. Craid, they were fantastic with their covers of video game uh, music. It was really a spectacular night, and I'll tell you more about it in a little bit because a couple of really weird things happened. Like a random cheeseburger. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, we're talking to the writer, director, and filmmaker of everyone's current favorite anti-capitalist science fiction comedy movie. There's a red-green revolution taking place, and it's all about eco-socialism. Being black and being trans have a lot more in common than you think. A new prostitution ordinance in Chicago resembles anti-prostitution ordinances across the country that have failed and have been proven unconstitutional. And Jeff ponders outliving his own usefulness. That stuff, plus some rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, the question from hell, what's happening on our Patreon podcast, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. There's an anti-capitalist sci-fi comedy movie that is blowing up theaters across the United States. Here to tell us about his film, rapper, producer, screenwriter, film director, and activist Boots Riley wrote and directed the movie Sorry to Bother You. Welcome to This is Hell, Boots. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being up this early in the morning. I cannot believe you're up at 7.20 in the morning. I can't believe I'm up at 9.20 in the morning. So thank you very much for getting up so early to be on our show. Well, you know, I, I would love to take that uh, thanks and credit, but I'm actually on the East Coast today. So, uh, oh, all right. Well, yeah, st- yeah, yeah. Still, I don't want to be up right now. Uh, find out more <laughs> about Sorry to Bother You at sorrytobotheryou.movie and follow Boots on Twitter at Boots Riley. So the first description I saw of your movie, an anti-capitalist sci-fi comedy. An anti-capitalist sci-fi comedy. Now, anytime we post an interview that we've done with someone who is critical of capitalism. And we have four people on this week's show who are doing that. Uh, So it happens a lot. Uh, There's always a pretty good chance that someone will either leave a comment or when someone shares our post, they'll get a response that goes something like, you wouldn't have this platform without capitalism. That without capitalism, we would not have the smartphone we're holding or the social media we're using. How difficult, how much of a challenge is it to make an anti-capitalist film within a capitalist system? Well, first, uh, if that was somebody's stupid thing to say, I would say uh, that 
all of those technologies that they talked about developing actually took um, a lot of programs that would be deemed socialist to make them happen uh, to, to uh, that, you know, millions of dollars were poured in um, of taxpayers' money in order to develop these things, right? So it's not something that just purely happened from the capitalist free market or anything like that. So all this stuff didn't come from that. Secondly, people made it. And no matter what system we're in, people are going to figure out how to thrive. The question is, is whether that technology, just that, that technology, whatever system we're in, is going to make that system more effective, more, more efficient. So the technology that we have now just makes us more efficiently exploited as opposed to the technology that we would have if we were in a system where the people democratically controlled the wealth that we created with our labor, then that technology would not just help the bottom line and not just help us figure out how to make our social lives more uh, more profitable and, and not just make us be feel guilty for taking a shit without doing an email. Oh, excuse me. But you, so so everything we have, it's, it's like if you were a slave and someone said, well, you wouldn't have that cot you're sleeping on if it weren't for slavery, you know, or you wouldn't have the, the porch that you're dancing on if you weren't in slavery. Well, yeah, but we maybe have something way better. Um, so I, I, I even, I think I got away from your question, which was probably something like, why, you know, how do I make an anti-capitalist movie in a capitalist system, right? Um, was it something like that? It was something like that, but you went off on the, on the correct tangent I wanted you to go off on uh, about the, about the criticism, but go ahead. Yeah. And well, well, here's the thing is that, um, to be against capitalism means to help to organize to get rid of it. It doesn't mean to figure out how to let it not touch you because there's no way to do that. You can't go off in the woods and, you know, make some, you know, bartering society that isn't touched by capitalism. Because if you can do that, you're helping capitalism because you're not working to get rid of it. And, and, and so I think we have a, the, that to a certain point, to a certain extent, the way that the left, since the new, since the beginning of the new left in the, in the early 60s has operated, has confused not only those of us on the left, but has also confused the critics of, of the left and, and maybe folks that would be on the left because we've made everything so much about spectacle that we haven't made it clear that what we're talking about is the need to dismantle the system through the working class collectively organizing and when you look at it that way, then you know that we have to be able to communicate with each other and we have to be able to work along the lines of the power that we have, that it's not just simply about I'm not buying Coca-Cola or I'm not buying Starbucks, because that doesn't do anything. All that does is make you support baby capitalists. <laughs> Nothing wrong with baby capitalists. 
They have nothing more wrong with baby capitalists than the big capitalists. But the point is, you're, we're not working against anything by doing that. I've been on independent record labels and um, major record labels, and I've been ripped off by both. You know, and it, it, it's, it's all the same thing. We're, we're talking about we're, it's, we're not talking about statements right here. So talking about getting information so that people can organize with each other. Right. Um, so it, and this gets back to the the kind of the kind of comment I am, am expecting that I will get as uh, you're um, uh, replying to earlier. I mean, if capitalism supplies so much, should we be critical of capitalism? What happens if capitalism is above criticism. What happens when there is no debate about capitalism within our public debate, within our public discussion, well, within the mainstream media? Well, let's put it like this. I've been to jail before. It was stupid. I was, I, I was young. Went to jail for like four days. In the midst of that four days, we were beating on tables, rapping. People were laughing and telling jokes. Also, there was a little bit of depression. We were watching TV. Now, did all those things come because we were in prison? No. Can't say that, oh, without prison, you wouldn't have a table to be beaten on. You wouldn't have even made those jokes. You know, we would have been making different jokes and all these things. And I think that that argument is so bankrupt that people shouldn't even spend time because the folks that are making that argument don't even really believe it. Just wasting your time. Yeah, I think it's more about being provocative than trying to actually have some sort of debate. They're trying to end the debate. Uh, d- does an anti-capitalist theme work better within a comedy, within a sci-fi comedy, than it would, say, in a straight, very dramatic and serious movie? I- is comedy a better venue for a capitalist critique or any political uh, uh, criticism for that uh, matter? I don't know. You know, I, I've only done one movie, so take everything I say with a grain of salt. But uh, they, uh, I, you know, here's the thing, is that analysis is about exaggerating contradiction to show it. So it's not really, you know, you might show, you know, even just the political analysis by taking, whittling away the stuff that is not important to the main point. You're highlighting this contradiction because that's what analysis is, is showing where the contradictions are, what forces push against each other. And contradiction is very much associated with irony. You know, these contradictions going against each other and irony and humor I don't know. Sometimes are the same thing, and um, the, and at the very least are very closely related. So, um, for me, I'm trying to make stuff that's closer to life, closer to the my true experiences. And and I think sometimes when people make a drama, they're they're whittling away stuff, and they're whittling away more stuff to make a drama than you are with something that that could be considered a comedy. But I, I feel like I didn't even, I didn't really try to push the comedy in this. Um, like some of the most 
funny things or things that actually happen. You know, uh, there's an opening scene um, that is how my friend Rob Ebo got all his jobs. He just never got caught, uh, like in the opening scene. And there's there's an argument between uh, Cassius and his friend Salvador that happens in front of the telemarketing offices. That happened to my little brother, and and I was like, I'm gonna put that in a movie one day. So for me, all of these things that you know, uh, I, I don't even I don't. There are some people saying, no, you can't call this a comedy. So I don't know. I, I don't know what works better. I, I know what it, that this seemed to work for me. Um, but yeah, that, that same, those same rules are ones that I kind of go away from. I don't, I, I couldn't say that this would work better than a political thriller. I mean, to the one part is that I could have done a similar, a story with a similar uh, meaning like, but done it in a more traditional way. I could have done this with a more like a Rocky storyline. Like they make, they try to make a union, they fail, they get better at it. They finally win and they get defeated again and they win or something. Could have done that. Um, but I wanted to make something that didn't fit, um, didn't fit the categories that we know about so that we, engage with it in a different way so that we, you know, engage with it um, without knowing what's coming. And for me, that feels more like real life. Yeah. And you definitely do engage with it. And I'm going to do everything in our conversation today to make sure that I don't do uh, that. I don't spoil the movie in any way. So I'll be skirting around the edges of some of the plot twists because it, it really is a fantastic movie. I enjoyed this incredibly. In the movie, the hero Cassius Cash Green, played by Lakeith Sanfield, he works for a telemarketer, and the phrase managers repeat to callers and have posted on the wall is, stick to the script. And I kept thinking about that when I was watching the movie and seeing it in the background. Stick to the script. In the process of writing or making, sorry to bother you, did you come across those who told you to stick to the script, that is to not make an anti-capitalist film? I mean, I don't think anybody would waste their time saying that to me in particular. Um, so no, um, but more around the uh, structure of the movie. Those are the things that I was told that, and the, the amount of things that were in the movie. Um, I, when writing this, I wanted to make something that felt more like literature and I'd seen other folks kind of try it, try that and have all these things going on. But usually it was happening in the dialogue and, and, um, and uh, it really didn't work to me. So I, I wanted to extend that to the production design and the narrative um, and, and have just have it rich with detail. And for some people, that feels wrong because that's not what you're told to do. Um, but like some of my favorite authors, they're the kind of authors that will be like, instead of just saying he went to the store, they'll be like, he walked slowly to the store and in his left hand, he carried the coffee cup that his grandmother 
20 years before had murdered his grandfather with. In it was the coffee from last night that he was still determined to finish. So all of that stuff, a lot of producers would be like, just show him at the store. And many times that, that's, that's the right way to do it. But other times, you're trying to figure out how to get these ideas in and how to, and, 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 and if you don't, if you just show them at the store, then 20 pages later, you got to have somebody clunkily and cor- and, and cli- in a cliched way saying, hey, you know, remember that his grandmother killed his uh, grandfather 20 years ago, right? And it ends up being, it, 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 you just end up doing the same thing in a different way. And in a way that people are more accept or are more used to. So I, 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 the 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 advice I got was more um, about how to make it, or put it like this: the push I got was about how to make it more like something that people were used to seeing. At the start, the lead character, Cash Green, is very concerned about doing something that matters with his life. He complains about life not meaning anything and that his life will mean nothing. How much do you see capitalism taking the meaning out of life? Does capitalism make life to some extent meaningless? Well, thank you for that question. I will now answer it in the way that you expected me to answer. Um, (laughs) I think that, uh, I think that we have our lives reduced in many ways, to the hours that we're working, and then the rest of the hours of the day are often just for us to rest up so we can go back to work. We try to get a few things in, um, spend time with somebody we love or whatever. Usually there's not enough time. Um, and I, and, and, uh, you know, I have a song called I Just Want to Lay Around All Day in Bed With You. And it's called that because if we didn't have to sell our time, that's what many of us would be doing. Now, obviously, whatever society we have, we have to be productive. But because of the way capitalism is set up, we have to produce way more um, than we would and things are organized not necessarily in in a way that where we feel a part of it. So our work is usually something that we're very disconnected from um, uh, because we don't have any ownership in it. And so, and so we don't feel a part of the things that we're, we're doing in it. And, and, you know, it makes us feel alone, makes us feel, uh, unnecessary and um yeah i think i think people go into depressions you know because of that i mean not to say that in you know you wouldn't have people depressed in anything but you know we we are so disconnected from being a part of the thing having any control or say in the thing that we spend most of our life doing and um our social lives are I mean, now, just even more recently, um, are even, you know, guided by this hand. Like, 
you know, like who we talk to because of social media, you know, like which of our friends that we talk to, which of our friends thought like get on our timeline and that we interact with is guided by, I don't know, Mark Zuckerberg or something like that. I mean, all of this stuff would have seemed heavy handed had you put it in a science fiction movie in the 80s. But here we are. So uh, in the movie, uh, in your movie, Sorry to Bother You, there's a hit show called I Got the Crap Kicked Out of Me. It doesn't use the word crap, but whatever. And Cash Green's girlfriend, uh, Detroit, played by Tessa Thompson, is an artist. And at one point she's wearing a pair of earrings with one having in large print, uh, murder, 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 and the other saying kill, kill, kill. How much does capitalism not only depend upon our basest instincts, but thrives off our basis to instincts and desires, even perpetuating and promoting the worst, most base parts of ourselves. A lot. Oh, there's more. Okay. Well, <laughs> I think that uh, here, I, I, I think that, that the main thing is we're not in control. Right. So, well, because that's what somebody might um, somebody might argue is that we are in control that this that is determined by our choices. So, is it our fault no, what, or is well, it capitalism's fault? Well, what 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 makes it our choices is the thing. Like, what controls culture? What controls the decisions we make? How how is that determined? Like, you can a lot of people would agree. Like, a lot of it has to do with the culture that you grew up in, what your parents teach you and all of those things that develops who you are. But where does that come from? Where does culture, the things that, how people sit down at the table, what people do uh, after work, where the, how is all of that stuff um, controlled? And, and, and here's the thing, sociologists and anthropologists um, would all agree, and, and of course, obviously, um, many revolutionaries, uh, that what creates culture is the way we survive. Like, everything stems from that. Every, you know, the, whatever business that town has, let's say, you know, you have a steel mill town, you have certain things that happen, rituals, like everybody meets at the bar at whatever o'clock. Uh, people wear these kind of boots. Those sorts of, all of that stuff extends from from how we survive and, and even certain words and all that sort of stuff. This is even going, this is beyond like ideas that get to us from the media or whatever. This is before even all of that. So, and, and you know, and like taking it back, I would say fishing villages create fishing songs. You can't, you know, go to an agricultural village and be like, you know what? Those agricultural songs, that's not what we are doing. We're all going to listen to fishing songs right now, you know, because you might play those fishing songs and you might sing them and people, they catch on, people start singing them. They like those melodies. They like the, the you know, the words that are used, but they're going to go back to agricultural songs because they can't take 
that, that where they are, they can't take the, those fishing songs and then just start fishing unless there's a river. You move them to a river and have them start fishing for a living, then that's when those fishing songs are going to really, and people are going to create those themselves. So everything derives from how people survive. All of, the, the, all of those things, uh, all the, the ills that we see um, that we are calling out in, 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 under capitalism are ones that are necessary, a necessary utility for a system based on the exploitation of labor. Like it helps it out. And, um, and, and not only is it that it helps it out, it grows from, from that. Cash Green is advised in the movie by an older telemarketer to sound white, but to sound white doesn't mean to talk with a nasal accent. As uh, Cash Green is told by the older telemarketer, uh, to mimic a white voice, you sound like you don't have a care, like you've never been fired, only laid off. That's sounding white. Is sounding white to you about a lot more than an accent, but the attitude in words? And what is that attitude? And so let's be clear. What they're talking about in here is this magic white voice. Like he, in the movie, he, um, he, they have a magical power. It sounds like it's overdubbed to everyone around them. Um, and so, and it, he also says there is no real white voice. It's what white people think they're supposed to sound like, and it's what white people wish they sounded like. And 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 for me, um, what I'm putting out there that is that that is, for instance, at the opposite end of the racist black tropes, the racist tropes of people of color or black people that we see, um, because those have have a certain utility that this also is a part of, which is, you know, they they show racist ideas of of, of, of black folks, which are that. The, you know, the, to to explain poverty, like, look, they're poor and in in trouble because you know they're savage or their culture doesn't you know make them doesn't give them a strong work ethic or um, you know the parents the 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 family is broken up. A lot of these things are you know just flat out easily disprovable lies and. Um, all the, but what they do is they, they're there, they're on TV, they're in the, and, and they explain poverty to the rest of the working class and to people of color as a system of bad choices that the impoverished make. Because the truth is, is that poverty is built into capitalism. Like you must have a certain amount of unemployed people in order to have capitalism works. You can't have full employment under capitalism because then everyone with a job could demand whatever they want because there's no way to fire, no way to replace them. And, and the, the, you know, you wouldn't even need a union if that, if there was full employment because nobody's scared of getting fired. So there's, there's always a need for this unemployed, this, this army of unemployed workers. And you see this you see, like, economic pundits getting scared, like, on in Wall Street Journal or whatever, when the unemployment rate starts going too low, 
there's a direct correlation with wages going up. And there's a direct correlation with wages going up to stocks going down. So we, there has to be a certain amount of unemployed people under capitalism. There has to be poverty. There has to be what we see in these shows called crime, which is people trying to feed themselves when they're unemployed and finally getting engaged in, in the illegal uh, economy, and which then makes all these other things happen. But it's explained to us as a crisis of culture of, from people of color. And, and, and so almost a reaction to the, and, and so that so whole thing can keep a white guy who's making 22,000 a year feeling like he's middle class. Right. Um, and, 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 and so there's this, there's this performance of whiteness that, is engaged in by these characters that's also a performance by white people. Like there's nothing inherently um, white or inherently black. So this is a, it's explained as a performance. And, um, and so that's what the idea of whiteness is. It's not necessarily the truth of where white people are. Is, is, I know this sounds kind of like an odd question, but is capitalism racist or is racism capitalist? I don't know. I think the question is a little moot because um, you have to, like, like, if you want to defeat racism, it's only going to happen if you get rid of capitalism. Uh, uh, And the idea of race something that was created um, to to uh, make slavery okay and they had to you know and, and they, they had to uh, in, to ensure the white working class of Europe that um, they weren't going to do this form of slavery to them and before that there had been uh, you know, the people were described in what country they came from or whatever and described in, the, you know, you might describe how someone looks, but there was no idea that the people of Ireland were somehow connected to the people of England because they were white. That wasn't a thing. Um, and and uh, so the, those divisions weren't weren't there, but this theory of race came up because of that. Because again, it had a utility, which is was is the same thing that's happening now, right? Which is, you know, these folks are not really even human, so you don't even have to worry about them. They're a whole nother race. Race meant species at the time, um, and uh, you know, so. We're, that's why it's okay to do this to them. They're, they're, you know, um, and and here are the qualities which show you that they are a different race. Um, but the point is, is it exists. It's here now. What do we do, right? And what we do has to do with 
where we think the basis of it comes. Is racism just something genetically inherent in people? I obviously, from what I just said, I don't believe so. Um, where did when did racism start popping up? And it has to do with capitalism, and it has. And what is the utility of even racist ideas? It has to do with capitalism. There, there are lots of people with racist ideas. Does that mean that? All of a sudden, we don't try to make a movement. Like what? I, we need the whole working class to organize together. The question is, what what changes what people think? So, um, one of the first things I was involved in as a teenager was um, helping out uh, and and supporting the uh, Watsonville cannery workers' strike. And there, there was a lot of stuff going on between. Portuguese and Mexican folks, Portuguese, Mexican, and Filipino folks. And lots of problems between the communities. Um, and the, these were all communities that were on, that were about to be engaging in this strike. And, um, you know, sorts of myths about this group of people does that to that group of people, this and that. People just hating each other. Romeo and Juliet type situations happening all the time. Anyway, the thing that brought people together was like, we have this fight to win. We are going to, we, we, we all, we can't just one group of us go on strike and win. Right. Because that's actually what, you know, the, 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 cannery owners would have wanted is because, you know, for people to organize along those lines. However, they had to figure out how to work together. And more than any other, like, don't be racist sort of thing, don't have these ideas about each other sort of talk, um, what changed it was people having a fight, having a reason that they had to figure out how to not alienate each other, right? Um, because if it's just about uh, let's figure out how to be gentler, it's just not going to ha happen. People act out of self-interest, which is some of the reason why racism exists and why why you can find people that are part of one um oppressed group that may only see the problems that are happening with their oppressed group and not see the problems that are happening with another oppressed group. The answer isn't just educating people, isn't just getting people to use the right language. The answer is getting involved in fights where we have to join together. Then people figure out how to work together, how not to um, alienate the people that they need on their side. Uh, another example was the, was the Longshoremen Union in, in, in the, the part that's in Oakland. Longshoremen Union in Oakland right now. So those are really good jobs because they shut down the port. They just, boom, millions of dollars lost, you know. In just half a day of shutdown. 
80% black people, the long, longshoremen uh, in, in the Bay Area. How did it get that way? Well, when they were making the, 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 longshore, uh, the, long, the Longshoremen's Union, there, there was a, uh, they had a militant strike going on. And a lot of the long, in the 20s and 30s, and a lot of the longshoremen, first of all, that was a situation where it was considered less, um, less skilled labor than fast food workers, let's say, or custodians or whatever. And also a more precarious uh, work environment where people were tired and fired each day all the time. And people were like, they were, and, and the jobs moved from this tier to that tier or whatever. Like, we were like, there's no way you can organize that. So they had this militant strike that it, where eventually, um, like, even tanks were brought out and all that kind of stuff. Well, um, and I, I, I don't know why I'm forgetting this guy's name, but the leader of the Longshoremen uh, Union at the time was a, was a socialist. And he already knew that, you know, there was a problem because most of the longshoremen in the Bay Area were white. And he was like, look, all they're going to do is go to the black community and get them to come in as scabs. And that's what was starting to happen. So he went to the churches and to the to to this place in Oakland called 7th Street where everybody hung out and there were bars and stuff like that and was like, look, uh, join in on this strike with us. Don't scab and, you know, guarantee that not only are, you know, do we have an inclusive union, but the union will be so strong that we'll hire, that you'll be able to do the hiring. So the union to this day hires its own. Like the boss doesn't do the hiring, the union hires, and that fight won, and a lot of black folks were part of it, and that's why the, that's why it's eighty percent black folks with labor jobs that pay a hundred and five thousand a year. Yeah. Uh, Boots, one last question for you. We've been speaking with rapper, producer, screenwriter, film director, and activist Boots Riley, who wrote and directed the movie Sorry to Bother You. You can find out more about Sorry to Bother You at sorrytobotheryou.movie. You can follow Boots on Twitter at Boots Riley. That's R-I-L-E-Y. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. So whether it's the ratings of I Got the Crap Kicked Out of Me, the TV show that's mentioned in your movie, or Steve Lifts, he's the owner of a company called Worry Free, or their stocks going up after being caught doing really, really horrible things, it seems metrics reward the worst behavior, whether it's the Nielsen ratings or Dow Jones. Why doesn't the market, why doesn't capitalism reward good behavior? I mean, well, that's just not the function of capitalism. The one function of capitalism is just exploiting labor. And I'm not the one, but that's the main part. So it's going to reward whatever can thrive in that system. Um, 
I don't know that there aren't things that make it through under capitalism that have beneficial qualities. I mean, there's pop songs that have great meanings and ideas. I mean, you know, there's that John Lennon uh, Imagine song. You know what I'm saying? There's things that do make it through. But but I think that uh, that the, the question is is what does it end up becoming? I mean, like Trump could use the song "Imagine." I mean, right now people would point out how hypocritical it was, but these pieces of culture that we make that do have redeemable or even really great qualities. Um, they're not attached to some sort of changing of the material situation we're in. They just get swallowed up and become part of what we're, what's going on. And, 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 and you know, that it's because our, our fight is not merely a cultural one. It's a material one. Has to do with, you know, and 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 many radicals don't want to deal with this because this is the kind of organizing that it will take that's harder. Like it's it's not just like you can say the right thing, like I'm right. No, you got to figure out how to work with people and how to get people on your side that don't agree with you, and and not just to show that you're right. And you have to, um, you have to organize in places where it's not. You can't just go find all the people that agree with you and then hang out with them and then walk together with them. You have to organizing on the job. Everybody listening probably understands it's a hard thing because everybody doesn't agree with you. How do you become the kind of person that galvanizes those around you? Me, I'm a performer. I was not a performer before. I became one. I became a personality that was bigger than life on stage because that's what it took. And I understood where, what I needed to do. I was not a writer. I made myself figure out how to write songs. I made myself figure out how, you know, because that's what was needed. We also have to figure out if we're someone that wants to change the way things are, how do we make ourselves that person that can work and get people to be involved with that. And some of that has to do with understanding that the, the fight is about this larger struggle that has to happen and that the folks that we're talking to that we disagree with are the folks that we, we need to organize. And, and, and so it's not merely about culture. Um, it's about, you know, cause you could have the TV show that wasn't, um, I got the shit kicked out of me. And if nothing is changing about how, how we, how, you know, what, what material, what, what our pay is, what, what our lifestyle is with regards to the material, uh, distribution of wealth. If none of that is changing, if there's no movement around that, it doesn't matter whether there's a love in on TV or I got the shit, I got the crap beat 
out of me or whatever. Um, it's, it's, you know, it really just comes down to that. I don't know if I, I kind of went off on a tangent. I don't even know if I answered the question. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter because your tangent was better than the question was. Boots, I really appreciate you being on the show with us this week. That's rapper, producer, screenwriter, film director, and activist Boots Riley. He wrote and directed the movie Sorry to Bother You. Find out more about Sorry to Bother You at sorrytobotheryou.movie. You can follow Boots on Twitter, at Boots Riley. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I want to thank all of our listeners, too, uh, for uh, asking you on line to uh, be on our show this week so thank you very much i really appreciate it Boots. thank you thanks for having me take care we want to thank listeners ben and mark for suggesting boots be on our show and because we actually got ben's and mark's suggested guests on the air as soon as we get ben's and mark's mailing addresses we will be sending them some this is hell subvertising stickers live from the nightmare of want this is hell There's a red-green revolution taking place, and you know you are old and white if right now you're thinking of that stupid Canadian comedy show that was on PBS. But that's not the red-green revolution we'll be talking about with Victor Wallace, author of Red-Green Revolution, The Politics and Technology of Eco-Socialism. That's the real red-green revolution, eco-socialism, socialism, which has all the inequality fighting vitamins of socialism, and all the climate change-stopping nutrients any growing body politics truly needs. We'll find out what eco-socialism is in a few minutes when we talk to Victor. Get the That Was Hell email newsletter free every Monday. Go to thisishell.com, sign up now. This is Hell in your inbox every Monday morning. Sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter and start every week listening to This Is Hell. Maybe you're enjoying your favorite beverage in your new This Is Hell coffee mug. Maybe you're enjoying your favorite beverage in the new This Is Hell tin coffee mug or ceramic coffee mug. Maybe you are reading a book that we gave you during the raffle last week at the uh, anniversary party or a book that we gave you for dropping by This Is Hell office hours. And then suddenly... Just like that, you click on your inbox and you've got links to this week's entire This Is Hell, all the separate interviews and correspondence reports organized and ready for your listening and sharing pleasure. My monologue is separated out, so you can share that if you'd like. Sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter at thisishell.com and start your week by listening to and sharing This Is Hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby. Gory rotten history in 1914, 104 years ago, a European crisis that had begun one month earlier with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, a.k.a. Archduke Exit, something like that, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. It wasn't that much of a throne anyway. This was more like a barca lounger. Uh, Assassinated by the Serbian partisan Gavrilo Princip. Is there any other kind of Serbian than a partisan Serbian? Finally came to a head as Austria declared war on Serbia. The very next day, an Austrian ship on the Danube River would begin raining shells upon the Serbian capital of Belgrade. I hate that term, raining shells. It gives it a kind of spring day feel that you really don't want when you're thinking about bombardment. It's as if you're listening to World World at War, but you're watching an Irish spring ad. 
The bombardment of Belgrade was the first shots fired, where the first shots fired was, uh, in what would become known as the Great War or World War I, as governments across Europe, caught in a tangled web of treaties and alliances, were swept up in an, an absurd chain reaction of war declarations, mobilizations, and pointless carnage. And they really should have called it the lousy war, not the great war. Who knows, maybe it wouldn't have lasted as so long. I mean, who wants to volunteer to fight in the lousy war, but volunteering in the great war, that sounds kind of noble. The war would drag on for another four years, killing an estimated 16 million people, including 7 million non-combatants. Yeah, just great war. That figure does not include the 50 to 100 million people around the world who would die in the 1918 influenza pandemic, which most likely was originally incubated in the filthy, unsanitary trenches of the European War. Look, we changed its name once already, from Great War to World War I, Hitler's prequel. Let's change the name again from World War I, Hitler's prequel, to the worst war ever. And that death toll of 116,000 does not include the 50 to 85 million people killed two decades later. 116, no, it's like 16 million, sorry, 116 million does not include the 50 to 85 million people killed two decades later in World War II, which in large part was ignited by smoldering resentments and rivalries left unresolved at the end of World War I. So that's 200 million people killed over 30 years in just nine years of war. They truly were the greatest generation. Seriously, tell me what made them so friggin' great. Was it the right-wing dictators they propped up around the world even when the people democratically elected someone else? Was it making certain that all the whites-only signs uh, were clearly marked and very bright and obvious so everybody could see them? Was it constantly threatening global annihilation? Was it lying to the public to get us into at least a couple of wars? Was it burning fossil fuels when we knew it was bad for the planet and not caring because you had to have a muscle car? Was it destroying the safety net for the next generation? Was it Reagan? Exactly what made the greatest generation so friggin' great? Please tell me. Email me, chuck at thisishell.com. That's Rotten History, and this is hell if you missed last Saturday's anniversary and listener appreciation party and you want to see the This Is Art Art Show, drop by any Saturday or Sunday from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Check out the art upstairs in Second Story Studios. That's the This Is Art Art Show with open gallery hours every Saturday and Sunday from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. through Sunday, September 2nd, when we will be having the This Is Art Closing Party. This year's show features artist Luke Brecken, who you might know from our national beer stuff. Ian Lance, you can check out his art at ianlancelantzart.com. Julie Murphy, check out her work at juliemurphy.info. Laddie Scott Odom, who you may know as laddieo.com from our show, but you can see all of his amazing handmade kites at laddieodom.wordpress.com. Ron Pollard, the photographer over at wekilleverything.com. And Vicky Jaguli, whose work you can find at honeybeeart.com. And that stuff is crazy. So definitely check it out. Uh, let's see. Anything else I want to mention? Oh, yeah. This week's question from hell is what will be the final vape flavor? What will be the final vape flavor? All replies get right on air during the third hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins the new This Is Hell tote bag, which you can find over at thisishell.com when you click on support. And you can also see when you come over to gallery hours or drop by office hours on Wednesday evenings. Again, the question from hell is what will be the final vape flavor leave your response now at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio and listen during the next hour to see if you have one 
Coming up on This Is Hell, there's a red-green revolution taking place. And no, it's not about some Canadian comedy show, but eco-socialism. Being black and being trans have a lot more in common than you think, and those commonalities can reveal to us the flexibility of terms we use to exclude. A new prostitution ordinance in Chicago resembles anti-prostitution ordinances across the country that even anti-trafficking groups oppose. Jeff Pounders outliving his own usefulness. That stuff, plus listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing our show online. We'll tell you about this week's uh, Patreon podcast. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Alternative to alternative radio, independent from independent media, This Is Hell. A red-green revolution is on the rise, and it's called eco-socialism. Here to tell us about it, Victor Wallace is author of Red-Green Revolution, The Politics and Technology of Eco-Socialism. Welcome to This Is Hell, Victor. Thank you, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be with you. We want to thank Tom, who gave us this guest suggestion of uh, Victor Wallace. Tom, we now owe him like 15 This Is Hell advertising stickers for suggesting three different guests in the last two weeks who we got on the air. You can find out more about Victor at victorwallace.com. That's W-A-L-L-I-S. You write, climate scientists are constantly finding that their dire projections pale in comparison with the actual pace at which life-sustaining natural infrastructures are breaking down. How well-suited is our current system of... Uh, democratic capitalism, whatever you want to call it, uh, for reacting to this kind of breakdown of life-sustaining infrastructures? How well-suited are we with the system that we have now to address the problems of climate change? Well, first of all, I would say that capitalism is inherently anti-democratic, and it's precisely because it's anti-democratic that it's not suited to uh, solving these problems. In fact, it's what has created the problems. Um, The system of capitalism is inherently uh, defined in terms of the striving for growth and accumulation, and that clashes head-on with the whole idea of natural limits, uh, which are clearly uh, being reached and have been even overtaken in in many spheres. So uh, let's say there is a democratic uh, component to our life, but it is one that has developed sort of in defiance of and in opposition to the uh, dominant interests of of capital. It's uh, a reflection of popular movements over time, which have succeeded at certain points in introducing some measures that have improved the situation, uh, as in the early 70s when all the major environmental legislation was passed in this country. But uh, it runs uh, sort of head-on into the the resistance, the, the obstacle of this perpetual desire for growth, which now has reached a kind of extreme form in the Trump administration in the the sense that they're actively dismantling all the limited measures that were put in beforehand to try and uh, preserve something of the environment. So then is climate change, in your opinion, uh, caused by a lack of democracy? Does climate change reveal to us the shortcomings of whatever we call democracy here in the U.S. or in the West or in the global North? Well, I would say it's a commentary not on democracy, but on capitalism. Uh, democracy is a, an ideal or a technique or a political method uh, that would express or does express to, uh, as far as it can the will of the people. But that has, from the beginning, been in conflict with the uh, 
striving of the dominant class to maintain its position and to maintain its economic activities. So the environmental crisis is definitely a reflection of capitalism. Democracy is the instrument that we need to use in order to fight against that. And the, the democracy that is necessary for that purpose is something much more sweeping and much more thoroughgoing than anything that we uh, currently have in this country. I mean, the, 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 let's say there are hints of it here and there, but there's uh, the dominant parties that people have uh, available to choose between the Democrats and the Republicans are not committed to the kinds of change that are necessary. In particular, they're not committed to any kind of effort to check the striving towards growth and accumulation, which is touted and advanced by administrations of whichever of those two parties. So it's not a question, democracy has to be not just a question of, not in fact at all a question of choosing between these two parties, but in fact a question of creating a popular movement that will uh, permeate the whole society, uh, will uh, transform institutions within the society, will create a new political force that can challenge both the dominant parties uh, in this country. So to what degree then can democracy challenge even conquer capitalism? Are, are, are uh, capitalism and democracy at loggerheads and that uh, kind of confrontation that they are going through right now is, the, is what leads to climate change? Well, the thing is, capitalism and democracy have always been at loggerheads. I mean, it goes right back to the founding of the uh, U.S. Uh, Constitution. I mean, that the, uh, the famous Federalist Paper Number 10 where uh, James Madison expressed his fear of a majority which would feel its strength and, and act in unison. So uh, climate change is, uh, as in its accelerated version, I mean, there are many causes of climate change over the geological time, but in the recent period of the last 150 years, and particularly the last 50 years, it's been enormously accelerated by the uh, by the burning of fossil fuels uh, and, and the unlimited, really, assault on the environment uh, that has been uh, the result of capitalist economic uh, production. And so what we're seeing of is uh, we, we have to distinguish between producing for human need and producing for profit. I mean, that, that humans have existed on this planet uh, in more or less, uh, well, without challenging the uh, the basic infrastructure for a long time. I mean, they've challenged it in small places, in limited regions, there have been destruction and so on. But now, with the globalization of capitalism, the threat to the environment is is worldwide. There's uh, no place that's immune from it, and the the places that suffer from it from the most are often not the places where the the greatest uh, uh, amount of production and burning of fossil fuels is taking place. But it, it, it has to be clear that the, a democracy is, is a principle which fights against capitalism. And I know that this is not what we're uh, instructed, but that's, that's part, of the, uh, part of the problem we have to overcome is, is people's uh, uh, lack of awareness of, uh, of the degree to which the, uh, the life style into which they've been accustomed of constant acquisition and growth and measuring your well-being by material possessions is, is at issue. And we have to find ways of uh, reshaping uh, people's sense of, of what we have to strive for. We have to satisfy people's needs, 
but satisfy them on a basis different from individual privatized acquisition and look to ways of satisfying people's needs that place less of a burden on the environment, less, uh, not only less in the way of burning fossil fuels, but less in the way of production of toxins, less in the way of using uh, materials, and so on. And above all, and, and what I stress in my book, is that this reduction has to, uh, a, a large part of it can be made by doing away with activities, economic activities, that don't in themselves at all contribute to human well-being. And of course, I think, first of all, of military production, that whole sphere, that, that's a, a sphere of destruction. But there are many other aspects. I mean, the whole way in which the transit system is organized under capitalism, the, the privatization, essentially, of, of transit in the form of personal possession of, of huge vehicles and the congestion resulting in it, all this type of thing has to be, has to be reconsidered. And people can live... Uh, as well, or I would say even better, without this, uh, these threats uh, to our health as well as to the long-term uh, viability of the environment. So do you think, and I, I mean, I, these are just kind of follow-up questions to the original because your responses have been fantastic. Do you think capitalists and capitalism view democracy as not only their competition but their enemy? Well, they won't say that, of course, but you have to look not at what they say, but at what they do. And and one of the things that we're finding now is uh, the su- voter suppression on a massive scale uh, by any means possible. And, the, uh, of course, the, the Republicans are leading the charge for voter suppression, but the Democrats are not doing much to resist it. And uh, there was voter suppression played a tremendous role in the outcome of the 2016 election, but the Democratic leadership uh, prefers to focus on on alleged Russian uh, interference as uh, to explain their defeat rather than to look at the enormous role of, of voter suppression in the form of voter ID laws, uh, in, inadequate uh, uh, presence of, of voting machines in certain neighborhoods, all kinds of things like that, which uh, I provide some of the documentation in my book, but there's, uh, w- one of the best sources for this is the journalist, the work of the journalist Greg Pallast, P-A-L-A-S-T. Uh, he, he did a, a a book and a DVD in 2016 called The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Uh, it's, it's scandalous. So, yes, the, the dominant forces in the society are definitely acting against democracy, although they will never admit it. Uh, we actually have had uh, Greg on our show so many times, I can't even count anymore. He's a correspondent on our show. We were the first uh, radio show, we are the first media here in the United States to do a live interview with Greg back in 2000 when he was working on the Bush v. Gore, and he was nice enough to put me in every one of his books, so I'm glad that you mentioned somebody I can brag about for a second. Uh, Victor, you write that tens of millions of refugees desperate for a place to live. Some are fleeing sea level rise and flooded or storm-battered homes. Others are fleeing wars precipitated by sustained drought-induced collapses of the food supply as in Syria, Central Africa, Central America. Still others are fleeing wars and repression that reflect long-standing imperialist projects, but whose initiators have become ever more intransigent as they seek to ward off the prospect of a diminished resource base. How much is the migration crisis, the migration crisis we're not only seeing at the U.S.-Mexico border, but around the world, in Europe especially, how much is that driven by climate change. If we did not have climate change, would we have a migration crisis? Because the migration crisis is often depicted as being driven by politics or war. But I don't hear climate change mentioned very often in the mainstream press. Well, 
I, th- I think all of those factors are involved. It's not one or the other. It's in combination. But the uh, but the climate change is to some extent the cause of of the, of the war. Certainly in the case of Syria, the uh, the uprising that uh, that started off that whole process was the result of a severe drought that took place for a, a approximately a five year period. Uh, and so, so uh, it's it, it's definitely a factor, and it's it's going to become an increasing one, especially because as as coastal areas get flooded, uh, countries like Bangladesh, it'd be impossible for people to live. But but even sort of within uh, within countries like the United States, where we had the experience, well, what was Hurricane Katrina? I mean, that that was the coastal flooding result of the you know this destruction of the uh, of the protective areas that that could have uh, limited the flooding, and then uh, there were internal refugees in the United States, you might say 200,000 people who had to leave New Orleans and never been able to go back. So uh, it's, it's a straw in the wind, so to speak. I mean, the, 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 this is going to continue. It's going to become worse. And the, uh, all the indicators are that the environmental dangers are accelerating and they build on themselves. This is what they call feedback loops. And so and at some point, you get, you, you get gradual change for a long time. At a certain point, you get a, a certain point, you get a sudden change, a sudden rise in the sea level, for example, or a, a sudden uh, tsunami provoked by dropping off of a big uh, ice shelf and so on. So uh, we're, we're in the early stages, but it's still affected a lot of people very severely, even now already. So the, the point is, it's, it's, it's urgent that we have. There's still time. It's it's all a relative matter. I mean, there are certain changes that have already taken place, or species loss and so on, that have already taken place. But there are some things. At least we can slow down the destructive process and try to create a better world in 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 the course of doing so. So, what do we miss in our understanding of even current events when we do not consider the change uh, the changing climate's role, or worse, we deny? that there is climate change? What do we miss in understanding, uh, in our understanding of current events when we deny or dismiss the impact of climate change? Well, I think climate change, uh, not just climate change, but the entire environmental uh, crisis, because a lot of the other things that result from that, the production of toxins and uh, petrochemicals, poisons, genetically modified organisms, and so on, all these things together, what we miss when we don't take them into account uh, is the uh, the whole agenda of uh, pushing forward an economic uh, drive uh, without taking into account the actual needs of of the people that um, that that we need uh, people need uh, have cer- certain basic needs like for uh, de- uh, decent housing. You know, homes. I mean, the homelessness crisis is terrible. The, the healthcare crisis is terrible. I mean, the, the, and the environment is linked with 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 all these things. It's linked with every aspect of of human uh, existence. I mean, so the healthcare, for example, is. Uh, I mean, the, the biggest health problem is basically poverty. But poverty itself is a, re- a reflection. Uh, is, is something that reflects the local environment in which people live, um, which again is is aggravated by these these larger things as well. So, uh, understanding the environment is is understanding the co- total context in which all our decisions are made. And so, what uh, in order to resolve the problem of the environment, we have to we will be attacking all the other problems at the same time, because. The things that drive the environmental crisis are the same things that drive the 
housing crisis, the healthcare crisis, the the drive towards war, and so on. It, it's and that's where we come back to capitalism as the, the common source of all these things. And and I think the the challenge, what I try to develop in my book, is how to understand all these issues in their uh, combination, in conjunction with each other, how they relate to each other, and how in in responding to them, we have to develop a unified program that covers all these issues. We have so many uh, good progressive movements dealing with one or other of the particular issues, the particular types of oppression, racial oppression, gender oppression, and so on, and housing crisis, health crisis. All these have to come together to form a, a, a cohesive political force to challenge the priorities of capital. And the environment is a kind of all-encompassing issue, uh, which, uh, when you study, it makes sense to see how all these other issues fit in with it. And that's what I try to explain in my book. You you have to go on a a certain length to to do so, but these things are tied together, and there are coherent programs uh, that are developed by some of the people who are challenging uh, the, the dominant paradigm. We are speaking with Victor Wallace. He is author of Red Green Revolution, The Politics and Technology of Eco-Socialism. Find out more about Victor at victorwallace.com. That's W-A-L-L-I-S. Can the economic engines of capitalism be fine-tuned so it is no longer the contributor to climate change that it is today? Can capitalism be reformed into being environmentally friendly? Well, I have some chapters in my book that respond directly to that question, and the short answer is no. I mean, but the more detail is that particular measures can be taken within the capitalist framework to alleviate the problem, but as long as you have the same dominant forces in power, they will always try to undo them. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the most progressive legislation on the environment was passed in the U.S. under Nixon, uh, ironically, uh, because there were strong popular movements uh, uh, for the environment at that time. But since the same dominant forces remain in power, now we have sure enough under, under Trump that they're all being undone. And uh, there, there's not much uh, resistance to that on the, on, the part of the, on the part of the corporate Democrats, because uh, they, too, uh, favor the, uh, what all of the above, is the way Obama put it when he was uh, president, in terms of energy. Uh, although he was willing to support uh, a little bit of solar energy, he was not willing to uh, really clamp down uh, and, uh, and uh, restrict and, and eventually uh, uh, end the, uh, the tremendous uh, power of, of the of the oil industry, but those reforms, as you're pointing out, those environmental reforms that happened during the Nixon administration, they they were they happened because of strong social movements of people pushing the Nixon administration to uh, employ those kinds of environmental protections. So, as consumers, are we right now, or as voters, or as political activists, because we don't have that kind of social movement that is putting a pressure on the Trump administration? As consumers, are we choosing? climate change, or is climate change not as much a matter of our own personal choice as it is the outcome of a system imposed upon us, a system we did not choose? Did we choose climate change, or was the system that created climate change imposed upon us? Well, it, it was imposed upon us, and I would say that uh, as consumers, we're, we're very weak. I mean, a consumer is someone who acts in an individual capacity, and we have to be able to be more than consumers. We have to be uh, I, I don't know what's the best word to use. We we have to be the uh, the formulators of 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 policy collectively. We all have to be involved in that. Uh, consumers, it's a one by one decision. Am I going to buy this or not? 
uh, am I going to buy a car or not? But I mean, as uh, as a collective group, we can decide that we want a system in which uh, it isn't necessary for everybody to have a car. On the contrary, we have a better way of organizing the community and a better ways of, of getting around within a, a reorganized community so that we all live better and do less damage to the environment uh, on a different basis. But that's the kind of decision that can only be made through popular organization. It's a political decision. It, it can't be made as a consumption decision. It, when you make consumption decisions, your parameters have already been defined by the by the larger structure. So in that sense, it is imposed on us. It's, it's an anti-environmental uh, agenda. It's imposed on us. It's not something we, we choose. We're sort of passive uh, collaborators in it, so to speak. You write that while the top U.S. mouthpiece of this ruling class, along with the acolytes at the, along with his acolytes at the Environmental Protection Agency, here you're talking about Trump, mocks the reality of climate change. The military leaders who command the system's armed enforcers have had no hesitation for at least the last 15 years in publicly situating what they acknowledge to be the consequences of global warming, the droughts, floods, hurricanes that directly or indirectly have pushed mass migration to its current extreme levels, all this at the center of their concerns. The currently dominant forces, rather than join the fight against climate change, erect walls to block out its victims by militarizing the problem. They not only draw resources away from any possible remedial steps, they also accelerate the spread of devastation. What happens when the public reaction to climate change is militarized? How does it lead to greater devastation? Well, it, it's not the public reaction that's militarized. It's the, the, uh, uh, it's the government uh, that militarizes the situation by uh, uh, essentially adopting a siege mentality. In other words, if you recognize as the more, uh, let's say, intelligent, I don't say that, I don't know, intelligence is the word, but uh, no, no, but no serious person really denies that, uh, that, uh, that climate change is taking place. They may make a front of, of denying it, but in there, uh, they know damn well that it's happening, and that the question is, how do you respond to it? And if you don't want to make the changes that are necessary in order to address the issue, what you want to do is you adopt a siege mentality and say, oh, the world can go to hell, but I'm going to make sure that me and my family and my, uh, my cohorts are going to be okay, and we're going to uh, sort of erect barriers uh, against uh, the intrusion and we're going to we're going to make sort of our own private island which will survive so to speak in uh, while everybody else is is sort of going down the drain so so, so this is uh, that's what i mean by militarizing that the, the idea is you you carry out land grabs you you, you make sure that you have your supply of of, of all the uh, of uh, of the fossil fuels and so on and you intensify all that, and that that becomes more intensified, precisely as the, uh, the the crisis worsens, because you're protecting, or this group is protecting itself uh, against a, a crisis which it can't help but recognize is is taking place, and and that's uh, that's the irony of the situation. So so the, I mean the, the whole uh, denialism is is a kind of political front to to try and. Uh, uh, prevent people from taking the steps that are necessary in order to solve the problem. And while they're doing this, this denial, this is what I'm saying about the, the Pentagon, uh, they're uh, doing everything they can to make sure that, uh, that uh, those who count in their eyes uh, are, are kept somehow protected from the effects of, of the uh, production system that they're uh, on top of.
You write that the struggle to restore the soil and the struggle to create a just social order have up to now been carried on mostly as parallel political movements without much mutual awareness, let alone collaboration at the mass level. Such collaboration, however, or at least the striving to attain it, is the true centerpiece of Red-Green Revolution. To what degree do we try to and even succeed at keeping environmentalism and politics parallel instead of collaborative? After all, I mean, the right views environmentalism as liberal and left-wing, so to what degree do you see environmentalism and politics as parallel instead of intersecting? Well, uh, what I meant when I when I said that is that uh, the environmental movement has not been uh, integrated into the other popular movements. Uh, so so it, uh, this is part of the larger fragmentation of progressive movements in this country, uh, which is a, a, a familiar problem. Um, so the, uh, the, the, this is the challenge I see, that, that it'll, the environmental movement will only become effective when everybody sees it as part of their uh, basic necessities, you know, that, that what they need politically is tied to the improving of the environment, that, that, that the environmental movement, uh, that coming together uh, within the, the kind of, uh, it's more than an umbrella, really a coherent force uh, that would be constituted uh, on a class basis is what will enable uh, the, the majority of the people to become a political force. And I say as a class basis, this is the uh, one of the central themes of, of the whole book, the, the idea that uh, nobody wants uh, the, the earth, to, the environment to be destroyed. But the problem is that the capitalist class has an interest in blocking the measures that would be needed to prevent that destruction. So in that sense, it is a class issue. And, and those who want to preserve the environment are, are forced to take measures which the, the capitalist class resists uh, 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 to its dying day, in effect. This has been very well described, for example, in uh, Naomi Klein's book, uh, uh, This Changes Everything, which came out four years ago, Capitalism Versus the Climate. She said it out very well. She, she said that the, the uh, she pointed out on the basis of interviews and so on that the, the capitalist class recognizes that the changes that would really be needed are a threat to their existence as a class. So I, I think this is the key point that people have to take home with them. And, and uh, the, the, the fact that this hasn't come together yet, I mean, it's partly the effect of the whole culture in, w- in which we live, which, which tries to pigeonhole different issues and keep people apart in various ways. And this is, again, a theme that I discuss at some length in the book. And uh, so, so our task is to overcome those divisions and come together as a kind of popular force that can, that can really uh, challenge and eventually overcome uh, this, this resistance. Is the essence of eco-socialism that at all times positions and policies are driven by their impact or their perceived impact on the environment and climate change, that the first question asked of every policy proposal uh, and every decision is, will this adversely affect, will this uh, policy have some kind of negative effect on the environment? Well, I mean... I think the general point is that the system as a whole uh, blocks the measures that are needed to protect uh, the environment. And what we have to do in challenging this 
is to show how each issue uh, is part of a larger uh, position, uh, which challenges the basic priorities of the dominant groups. And so in challenging those priorities, the, the, the economic priorities of capital, as they affect the environment, they're parallel to the economic priorities as they affect every other issue. So you can talk about how the the housing market affects uh, affects the problem of, of homelessness, and the, or the uh, privatization affects the problem of education, and they're they're parallel to the issues of, of how uh, things affect the environment. So it's not that every issue is uh, that you you talk about every issue as an environmental issue, but you you recognize the environment as an issue that affects everybody and which displays the the same structure of 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 conflict you know on one side capital pushing for privatization maximizing production and so on uh, and and indifferent to the human consequences so so if you have a, a privatization of education you you sort of let the uh, let the majority uh, uh be uneducated because that's not your priority, and uh, and so on, and and with the housing market, the real estate market, and so on, uh, if it makes a lot of people homeless, uh, you don't care about it. So, so similarly with the environment, if it if it leads to a lot of toxins, if 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 it uh, creates health hazards and so on, uh, you you disregard that. So so I think all these things have to be seen in their interaction in that way. And I think if if people understand that, this will be this will help them come together to form a cohesive political force, which will challenge the the dominant uh, forces on on all these fronts, uh, not only the uh, directly uh, health related things, but the housing and so on. So so it the challenge is to see all this stuff together. This this is why I call it red green revolution. That the, the red part refers to the. Uh, the, the the socialist tradition, the whole uh, challenge to capital, and the green part referring to the environment, and and arguing that the two really have to be understood as inseparable, because socialism uh, challenges head on the whole idea of of putting unlimited growth uh, at the forefront of of the of the agenda, and that's the same uh, position that's taken by anyone who has to defend the, uh, the the natural environment. You have to challenge the priority of growth so as to uh, allow decisions about what to produce and how to produce and for whom and so on to be made on a different basis, to be made on the basis of what's to the common interest of of all the people and of uh, the uh, looking at it in the long term across generations and therefore uh, uh, taking into account the natural environment. And that's really interesting that uh, this kind of uh, green capitalism, the individuality of consumer choice, how uh, that's just going to perpetuate a system of trying to act individually instead of collectively. And so how how much those kind of individual acts and thinking those individual acts can actually be politically effective uh, actually undermines the ability to have any real political effectiveness. That's a really fascinating point. Is there a relationship between what you see as a culture of violence and what you describe as a disconnect from nature. Does a culture of violence disconnect us from nature? Does our disconnect from nature lead to violence? Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, I think that there is a definite connection because the the capitalist agenda is associated with domination of nature. You sort of 
typically, I mean, the example of the clear cutting of a hill, uh, removing all the trees, uh, that's a violent assault on 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 on, on nature. And uh, similarly, so uh, if if you want to sort of get rid of that, these uh, factory fishing vessels, which which gobble up, uh, you know. Millions of little fish all at once, uh, you know, and it, all these things are. Uh, that's an expression of violence too, just as much as the sort of uh, propensity to go to war or propensity on the part of in, individuals to go out and shoot a lot of people. All these things are. Uh, there's there's a connection between them. They come uh, they they come out of a similar culture, and I think it's very important to, to see that connection to to recognize all these issues as being interconnected. Certainly, the the relationship of nature, which sees nature as something to be tamed and dominant and controlled instead of having uh, natural structures or, or natural phenomena well even the the uh, transformation of, of wild areas into into golf courses and we show this sort of taming nature dominating it taking control of it and using a lot of chemicals to create an artificial kind of environment all this is, is these things are all interconnected and I, th- I think uh, your question points exactly at that uh, at that insight. You write that uh, what you believe is needed is a cultural transformation, more provocatively envisioned as transformation of human nature, which is an indispensable component of the eco-socialist project. Now, a lot of people might think that that kind of changing, that transformation of human nature is impossible, that the idea of it is utopian, and I believe that, but I believe that human nature transformed quickly from the 1930s New Deal state that uh, lasted through the war on poverty to the 1980s state of Reaganism that lasts today into neoliberalism, that humans transform relatively quickly and easily through policymaking. So is transforming human nature easier than we think? Is it not as difficult as we imagine to transform human nature and for humans to adapt to the new nature that they live in, to one that is more concerned about our ecological impact on the planet is that a lot easier than we think it might be well i i don't like to say that it's easy because especially at an individual level you, uh, it's it appears kind of daunting but i i think what one can say to uh, counter the idea that it's impossible or unrealistic is just to look at actual differences that exist and how they relate to uh, practices that are carried out one of the areas that i found striking really as an illustration of this is the the approach to uh, uh, imprisonment to, to punishment of people while they're in prison as opposed to looking at rehabilitation and uh, so, so there's a striking uh, contrast between uh, dominant u.s practices of, of really not only imprisoning people but punishing them continuously and severely while they're in prison making it as unpleasant as possible versus the practice in the scandinavian countries of of seeing the the, the prison experience as a as an opportunity to re-educate people. And you, you can look at the difference in the sense of the uh, percentage of people who uh, go back out to commit crimes uh, afterwards. It, there's, there's, there's no comparison. I mean, that, that, uh, it's, it's, it's much, much smaller in those countries than it, than it is in the United States. So uh, that's a kind of uh, illustration in a sense. But uh, I think another kind of uh, point that you can make is in the psychological literature about, about children, the re- rearing of children and so on, and the, the sense in which if, if children are raised in an atmosphere of respect and, and so on, uh, they, they turn out uh, differently from the way they turn out if they're raised in an atmosphere of abuse. I mean, that's something that's pretty commonly recognized. So the, these are different types of human characteristics that are displayed and which are c- clearly traceable to, uh, to the formative influences on people. So uh, 
all we're talking about in talking about transforming human nature, we're talking about such differences uh, on a large scale. And if you have a cooperative environment, if you have uh, kind of a, a supportive uh, environment, uh, you will look at other people and treat other people differently from what from the way you will if you're in a constant sort of rat race against them and everyone, you see everyone as a rival or as a competitor. What does, because you're, you've been critical this morning of, uh, and you are in your book, of perpetual expansion of the economy, perpetual growth of the economy. What does eco-socialism offer as an alternative to a culture and politics of perpetual expansion? Aren't expansion and growth the only ways we can not only have a good standard of living, but to also make our standard of living even better? Well, I, I think we have to reconsider what we mean by standard of living. I mean, uh, do you measure standard of living by uh, the amount of, of, of high-tech goods that that, uh, that each of us possesses, or do you measure, uh, I, I prefer the term quality of life to standard of living. Standard of living suggests some quantitative measurement in terms of goods. Quality of life refers to the actual your health and the, the the interactions you have with other people, your cultural experiences, and so on, and they uh, and the, the the total material prerequisites for that uh, are less, especially if you view it as a kind of collective thing rather than as a as an individual thing. I, I mentioned the example of transit already, but that that's one illustration. But uh, the 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 good life is is something that involves. Uh, uh, sociality and the the social experience of living in a community and, and of creating things with other people together, that type of thing uh, involves uh, is is not something that involves tremendous amount of uh, material possessions. And uh, I mean, there have been studies of the connection between happiness and material possessions. And of course, if you're deprived, you can't be happy. But but once you reach a certain point. Uh, you know, up to a certain point, there there is a real uh, direct correlation between your material uh, well-being and your happiness. But when you go, the, when the material benefits go beyond that point, there's no connection at all. The connection disappears, and people, uh, you know, with enormous numbers of possessions, can be just as uh, mixed up and unhappy and so on. And and it, it it doesn't benefit them anymore. So this idea that that we uh, that to live better is to have more and more is is one of the fundamental things that has to be uh, overcome and, and, and attacked and 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 this is not only for the sake of improving the environment but for its own sake as well because we'll actually be better off in that sense we'll be healthier that 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 great inequality this is another point that some of these medical and public health studies have shown that great inequality is uh, harmful to the health not only of the people who are at the bottom but even of the people who are who are at the top it it creates tensions anxiety and so on and the uh, fear of uh, constant fear and projection which are uh, inimical to a, a, a satisfied kind of life just a couple more questions for you, Victor. You write that the fusion of unabashed racism and misogyny with a ridiculous, if not symptomatic, concentration of wealth at the pinnacle of the U.S. enforcement apparatus could galvanize the affected 
popular majorities, both in the U.S. and worldwide, into a unity that many years of effort by activists have failed to achieve. Signs of such an impact are already spreading within the United States, as polls show increasing support for socialism among young people and as massive protests arise on the part of women immigrants, low-wage workers, and prisoners who in September 2016 launched a work stoppage across several states against the still unfinished abolition of slavery. Such particular acts hint at a wider loss of legitimacy of the established order. What impact, if any, are these particular acts having on the established order's legitimacy? Do you see that that, that legit, legitimacy being questioned, being challenged publicly? Yes, I, I think the. I mean, the examples I gave uh, apply, and there's more recent ones too. For example, the uh, the successful campaign of uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez in in, uh, in the New York district. Uh, that that's that's a remarkable expression of of uh, total rejection of the established order. It was totally unexpected. There's a there's a candidate now in Hawaii who, uh, named Kaniela Ng. ING, a candidate uh, in, in the Democratic primary for Congress, uh, who again is, is expressing a, a, a very drastic rejection of the dominant agenda. And so, so these things build up uh, bit by bit. But, I, but uh, if, if the democratic uh, process can be allowed to unfold and if the votes cannot, uh, can, can actually take place, and if, if there's, if uh, and, uh, you get the old thing of getting money out of politics and the grassroots campaigns uh, and so on. Uh, the lack of legitimacy is already there. What What's missing so far is the, uh, the capacity to mobilize it into something, some positive uh, alternative force. And so these candidacies are sort of uh, indicators of of this beginning to happen, but it has to happen on a, on a much wider scale. Uh, but, but I mean, the the, uh, the kind of disgraceful uh, uh, expressions that we hear from the highest levels with, with Trump and so on are uh, uh, they, in effect, are an expression of the uh, of of what has thrown people off. I mean, obviously, there's some some people who are enthusiastic about it, but I mean, uh, the the actual experience of people living and and uh, finding trouble meeting their basic needs uh, does make them discontented. And so, uh, even in a, in a kind of perverse way, the the support that Trump got uh, was. Uh, based on a kind of uh, sense that that he was uh, flailing against the system, which was, of course, an illusion. But but I mean, people are looking for something different. There have been polls that have shown, for example, that I think it said that sixty percent of the people believe there's a need for another party uh, other than the, the Democrats and the Republicans to uh, to to choose from. That's certainly a reflection of loss of legitimacy. The last uh, presidential election, both the uh, both the candidates were uh, unpopular with a majority of the population. That's uh, an expression of lack of legitimacy. So it's all over the place. The question is, what do we do with it? How do we build something positive out of it? Well, that'll lead to my last question. We've been speaking with Victor Wallace. He is author of Red Green Revolution, The Politics and Technology of Eco-Socialism. You can find out more about Victor at victorwallace.com. That's W-A-L-L-I-S. One last question for you, Victor. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer 
or our audience is going to hate your response. I was going to ask you if we are on the verge of a revolution and when that revolution might happen. But because you brought up the kind of abrupt things that could lead to a quicker reaction due to climate change, like an ice shelf breaking off and calling it, causing a tsunami, what do you, well, I guess, will that mobilization that you were just talking about, Will that mobilization be something that is slow in coming, or do you think that that mobilization may be as abrupt as climate change will be? Well, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, any revolutionary process uh, taken as a whole involves both gradual components and sudden or rapid components. So, uh, so, so in a way, you can say both both are true. But, but, but I, th- I think that. Uh, when when revolutions come, uh, they are sudden, but they reflect a buildup over a long period of time. And so we're seeing some of these uh, sort of first indicators of a, a readiness for it, and and that's uh, that's what we have to have to go on, and uh, what what it will take to uh, to actually uh, bring about a basic change. That, I mean, it's uh, uh, every revolution seems impossible until it actually takes place, and and, and that's the point. We know that from from past history, revolutions have taken place. Uh, seemingly all powerful regimes have been dislodged and have have have, have crumbled, uh, but. Until they did, they, they seemed all powerful, and 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 that's so. That's something we have to keep in mind. We have to keep struggling for what we think is is right and needed, and we may even get some some small improvements along the way. But we recognize that those are not enough. But as we keep on doing this, that helps build up the support we need to form the kind of force that's needed to really drastically change the. Uh, the, the conditions or, or the, the allocation of power in the society and, and bring it, make it really into a, a, a kind of democratic power, which is collectively held by, uh, by, by the majority of the people through real representative people who actually come from the, the sort of the, the background of wanting these uh, radical changes and who will therefore not betray that when they get into in the position of office. But that requires an, an organized force and not sort of just individual politicians. There may be individual politicians who are uh, sincere and, and committed. Uh, there'll be limits to what they can do. They, so they need more of, a, more of an organized force. And so, so this, uh, yeah, this, this, this is a combination of gradual and sudden change. <laughs> Sorry to, to weasel on that one. <laughs> Victor, I really appreciate That's why it's called The Question from Hell. Victor, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. You can find out more about Victor by going to victorwallace.com. That's W-A-L-L-I-S. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you very much, Chuck. Truly revolting radio, this is hell. I want to, again... Thanks to Tom for another great guest suggestion. Now we owe Tom like 15 This Is Hell advertising stickers for suggesting three guests in the last two weeks that we got on air. So if you have any guest suggestions for us, send it to chuck at thisishell.com. And if your guest suggestion gets on the air, we will send you some free subvertising stickers. Blackness and transness have a lot in common. From the way that they are defined and categorized as lower caste that do not have access to the rights and privileges of others, to the abuse and even deadly violence they encounter, there are a lot that both blackness and transness share. We'll discuss that connection in a few minutes when we talk with C. Riley Snorton, author of the award-winning book, 
black on both sides, a racial history of trans identity. Let's go to the update booth with Alex to find out what he's been up to on social media. So what have you been doing on the Facebooks, Twitters, and all that kind of stuff? Well, the most important and most exciting thing that I did all week was I posted two exclusive Wesley Willis songs that were performed live on This Is Hell in 1997 and then never released anywhere else as far as I can tell. Uh, that was from the Patreon bonus episode. So if you subscribe on Patreon at the $4 level, you get a weekly podcast. But for people who subscribe at any level, I've been posting something from the archives every other week. And I posted a really insane show from 1997, the music episode of This Is Hell. And uh, that had two performances uh, by Wesley Willis that, yeah, like I said, had not been per- uh, performed anywhere else or released on CD. Uh, those songs were Andrew Cunanan and Die Like a Doberman. <laughs> Die Like a Doberman is awesome. And uh, if you're on Patreon or if you sign up for Patreon, I really recommend this episode is, uh, it, you are not expecting an episode of This Is Hell like the episode that I played. It was real weird. Yeah. Uh, it was fun. Someone actually wrote uh, in and said they felt like they were on acid yeah, listening to this. I saw that too. Uh, so actually, but I, uh, that entire episode is right now just only available on Patreon, but I broke out those two songs because the world needs more Wesley Willis music. So I posted those on SoundCloud, so you can listen to those if you want. Um, also on Twitter, I learned about past guest Maximilian Alvarez's new podcast, Working People, which is an oral history of the lives, struggles, dreams, and stories of working class people in the 21st century. And also I thank everyone for coming to the 22nd annual, or for our 22nd anniversary party. Uh, but I said, most of all, thanks to Chuck for doing the show for 22 years. It's like if Cal Ripken smoked weed and actually got hurt all the time, <laughs> but still showed up to work. Which is way more inspiring. Does Kevin Costner have to have sex with my girlfriend to keep my streak going? I think that's how Kevin Costner keeps going anyway. (laughs) Uh, Also on Facebook, I shared a Baffler article that was really good called A Crime and a Pastime, which is on skateboarding's libertarian streak, (laughs) and a uh, really good monthly review piece called Making War on the Planet, Geoengineering, and Capitalism's Creative Destruction of the Earth. That was recommended by listener Robert. And then finally, a series I posted from Verso's blog, a series of short videos with James Bridle about the future of AI, imperial infrastructure, and the power of conspiracy theories. And uh, somebody wrote in to say they'd like to have him on the show. He doesn't do Saturdays, but uh, pretty soon we'll be able to do shows on the week. So uh, we may be hearing from James Bridle pretty soon, which is exciting. It's time for listener feedback. Perita emailed us at chuck at com a couple of weeks ago. And we're going to keep reading this email because Preeta joined us at the anniversary and listener appreciation party last weekend. And because she's written a book about This Is Hell. And we want to read it again because, you know, Preeta's really awesome. Alex and Chuck, I am working with a group called the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee here in town to organize a solidarity event for the upcoming national prison strike, which is going to be happening from August 21st to September 9th of this year. The event we're doing is going to be during the day from noon to 11 p.m. on Saturday, August 4th at the Co-Prosperity Sphere, this is where Lumpen is, which is located at 3219 South Morgan Street, 3219 South Morgan Street, Saturday, August 4th from noon to 11 p.m. The event is going to have speakers, music, letter writing, t-shirts, posters that can be bought for fundraising, all of this in support of the upcoming national prison strike set again to take place from August 21st to September 9th. So again, this event that Preeta is suggesting that you go to to show your support for the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Community uh, National Prison Strike. It's happening on Saturday, August 4th at the Co-Prosperity Sphere, 3219 South Morgan Street from noon to 11. We got an email from John at Chuck at This Is Hell.com. Hi, Chuck. Incredible 
anniversary party. The new studio will be great. If you are serious about getting a panel together with Flint Taylor and others to discuss legal issues, count me in. I almost completely forgot about this because all sorts of wackiness was happening at the party. I was talking to John, uh, who is an international human rights attorney, and we were coming up with ideas for the new studio and mentioned how we have so many human rights contacts that could be a great panel. So that's the kind of stuff we're going to be able to do with the new studio. So now I got to add that to the list of ideas for stuff we can do when our studio is functioning, which should happen by early September. Thanks, John. And we'll get back to you in a very near future about uh, the ideas that I have for that panel. Cal writes to us at Chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck, I was searching for a subversive read truthful economics podcast about three years ago and found an interview you did with Michael Hudson, the economist, not the journalist. This is Hell has played a big part in my life ever since then. On that note, Michael has a newish book out called J is for Junk Economics, and you might consider getting him back on the show. Also, I need some t-shirts already. Where are the new t-shirts, and how does one get some? Hella grateful, Cal. Cal, Michael Hudson no longer does weekend interviews, so he is on our list of guests. We want back on the show when our studio is operating. Another reason to show your support for This Is Hell and the construction of our very own new studios. But Alex, before we go to our next guest, how can people like Cal get t-shirts other than coming by This Is Hell Gallery Hours tomorrow at Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, or during office hours at Carrie's on Wednesday nights? How can people get t-shirts and all that kind of stuff? Uh, they can wait until Sunday night when I finish writing the code for the uh, PayPal thing. And then uh, on our website, this is how you click on support. There will be shirts and that'll probably be uh, tomorrow afternoon. My baby's nap schedule permitting, uh, I can get the work finished. But yeah, the, by this end of this weekend, uh, there will be T-shirts and, and more. And you have Riley on already, correct? Yep. All right. So let me just tell people what the question from hell is. And then we'll move on to Riley. This week's question from hell is what will be the the final vape flavor? What will be the final vape flavor? All replies get read on air during or after our next guest on this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins the This Is Hell tote bag, which you can find at thisishell.com starting tomorrow when you click on support. Or if you drop by tomorrow during gallery hours at Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge 2251 from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. to check out the This Is Art art show that's the places you can find that kind of stuff all right coming up on this week's this is hell being black and being trans have a lot more in common than you think and those commonalities can reveal to us the flexibility of terms we use to exclude a new prostitution ordinance in chicago resembles anti-prostitution ordinances across the country that even anti-trafficking groups oppose We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell with a moment of truth where Jeff Dorchin ponders outliving his own usefulness. All that stuff plus more listener feedback. A question from Hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. We'll tell you about what's happening on the upcoming episode on Patreon of This Is Hell, which you can find at patreon.com slash thisishell. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Yes, another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Blackness and transness have a lot more in common than you likely think. Here to tell us how they are connected and what that reveals about both, C. Riley Snorton is author of the award-winning book, Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity. Welcome to This is Hell, Riley. 
Thanks so much, Chuck. It's great to be uh, in conversation with you and, and on the program. We want to thank both Madeline and Jack for suggesting Madeline or for suggesting Riley as a guest on this week's show. Uh, for suggesting Riley, Madeline and Jack will both be receiving this is how advertising stickers. You can find Riley on Twitter at C Riley Snorton. You write about Tamara uh, Dominguez, died on uh, Monday, August 17th, 2015, in a Missouri hospital after sustaining injuries from being struck repeatedly with a sports utility vehicle in a church parking lot in northeast Kansas City. Her unidentified boyfriend told the Kansas City Star she had been living as a woman in the United States for at least seven years after leaving her native Mexico to escape discrimination for being transgender. She had a lot of dreams. You add how the boyfriend is invoking a familiar mythology of the hopes, dreams, and promises of different ex- experiential modes of freedom possible in the United States. The framing of her death in such terms underscores the failed promise of the nation's state. Is exclusion of any sector of the population from the rights and privileges guaranteed by the state, a failure of the state. Should we be viewing this as a failure of the state, not as a failure when you see an act of racism occur in public, not as an act that is an individual act by that person, but a failed act by the system of the entire state? Well, I'd say that uh, when I uh, suggest that, you know, the language of promise that Tamara uh, came to the United States to um, to experience uh, was, in fact, the very, um, uh, you know, it, it, it masked the very conditions that the U.S. as a nation state um, is founded on, right? That, like, part of what I, I'm getting at is that the U.S. is uh, a nation state and not in an exceptional way, but in a very particular and violent way that I trace across the book, um, is a nation state that is premised upon exclusion of, of, of folks like Tamara. Um, and so, you know, even as we have a, a kind of rich rhetorical um, repertoire of language of freedom and rights and inclusion, um, this nation has also, and we have only seen it function by way of excluding particular groups from what it means to uh, uh, participate in the kind of project of U.S. citizenship. How dependent do you think our economic system is? How dependent do you think our our government is on that kind of exclusion? Well, I mean, if you're talking about the kind of contemporary moment, um, certainly uh, we're in a, a, a moment in capitalism in which uh, it is about a kind of uh, a massive dispossession of of human beings. Uh, You know, capitalism, uh, late capitalism, whether people call it neoliberalism or or simply late capitalism, post-industrial late capitalism, all of these terms swirl around the idea that uh, to, to think about the kind of accumulation of wealth is to also give license to uh, a kind of uh, understanding of people as disposable, um, and so if we think of, so, if we think about the kind of economic structures that are in place that gave rise to certain kinds of resistance movements, most recently um, and spectacularly in um, 99% uh, movement, 
but we can also look, of course, across uh, history and and into the in in our our very present day to think about the kinds of uh, attacks on workers, uh, the the kind of rise of uh, of animation as the kind of quote unquote good sense of what it means to uh, uh, good sense in in the kind of logic of capitalism. Um, but there have been so many um, important works. I'm thinking about the uh, the work that people have done on on uh, looking at the kind of global system of capitalism as already being entrenched in so many other modes of of dis of of wealth accumulation based on human dispossession. Of course, the transatlantic slave trade being one of them. Um, and then, we, and then when we talk about the kind of governmental picture, uh, I was struck by the um, the teaser that you gave about the recent. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's passed or if it's just introduced anti-prostitution law in Chicago. Uh, but I mean, I think we're also uh, trying to think about what forms of regulation and policy uh, are. Are being posited as something for the public good um, in a moment where there's a, a great deal of confusion. I would say productive and generative confusion about who the person and who's a corporation. That is, there's so much in there. That was that's like one of the best answers I've had to a question in a really long time. Thank you, Riley. Uh, so, uh, but this kind of gender variant exclusion. This isn't yeah. anything new. So is this trans cultural and societal exclusion finally being recognized, find, finally being reported? Or is it that trans people are finally being recognized as trans people? Yeah, that's a really um, fascinating question. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that, that we we would need to, to just uh, put on the table is uh, that, you know, we could say at least um, in, from the mid-1960s on, uh, there's been some sense that trans people exist right, in the kind of fabric of uh, neighborhoods and communities, uh, the kind of visibility of trans women in uh, the larger lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender movement um, is something that I don't think uh, it can be uh, denied or, 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 or effectively erased. And I'm, you know, specifically thinking about uh, figures like Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, uh, Sir Lady Java, folks who were very, uh, and, and, and also including, I'd be remiss not to, to name a living um, a, a living icon of Miss Major. Um, and so, you know, when we think about uh, a kind of uh, shorthanded as, quote, gay rights movement, um, that that often has, has been um, one in which uh, particularly trans women of color have been at the forefront of making uh, certain kinds of political demands. Um, but I think we're also living in a time in which, and you know, the beginning in the uh, early mid '90s with the kind of uh, 
ritual uh, that has been uh, sometimes called Transgender Day of Remembrance, sometimes called Transgender Day of Resilience, um, that uh, that there is also a sense of what social media and and mass media uh, uh, has has uh, done is made visible the the ways that uh, trans people of color, particularly Black and Brown trans women, um, have been uh, subjected to uh, violence, a kind of violence uh, that um, has has resulted in numerous murders. Um, but I think part of what uh, I, I'm addressing in the preface of the book is that, yes, we live in a, in a landscape in which it's quite clear that um, trans women of color are incredibly vulnerable to um, the mechani- to mechanisms of premature death, in which murder is not the only scale for which in which we can think through how violence shaped black and brown trans people's lives. Uh, and so part of the project uh, in a kind of larger sense is to to talk about what I think is a um, a very complicated moment, a moment in which there are uh, figures who have uh, notoriety, celebrity. Uh, we also, uh, you know, are more and more aware of those who have been um, uh, victims of, of violence. Uh, but I think there's also a kind of uh, another picture uh, that we need to think about, which is kind of what I w- what what we might think of as the kind of mundane textures of violence that shape uh, black and brown trans folks' lives. Um, by which I mean, um, the, the, I, you know, I immediately am thinking about that, that, that uh, ordinance in Chicago as having a, a particular impact on trans women of color uh, who, because of, of modes of, of system, systematic discrimination, um, are often um, making use of sex work as a way to uh, support themselves in 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 ways in in the in the ways that are available to them in a structure in which uh, underemployment is also an incredible issue, a kind of persistent characteristic of the, the the of the way discrimination works in in this country. And you write extensively about the historic erasure of transness. Uh, that from our history. Um, so what would you say to somebody? Just, I know this is kind of a devil's advocate question, but you know, uh, trans people have been very, very fortunate in finding a community on social media. So they don't feel as isolated within their small community. They finally found a larger community within social, within social media and therefore, uh, you know, they've been able to express that transness more and more. What would you say to somebody who believes that transness is something that is new, that is an invention of the last maybe few decades or last generation? What do they miss in understanding transness? And how do you think that idea that transness is something new might affect the way that they perceive transness? Right. So um, there, I'll, I'll take the second part, but I also want to kind of loop back into um, uh, how the question began. Um, 
So in terms of, of the question of transness is new, I mean, I think that uh, one of the things that I flag in, in the book is just how often that becomes the uh, narrative in, excuse me, <clears throat> in reporting on trans people. Uh, so if we, you know, often Christine Jorgensen, who, uh, you know, in 1952 makes an international media splash uh, because she has uh, surgery um, to uh, confirm her gender identity. Uh, and, you know, like the, the news often took her to be the first case. In fact, that wasn't even the first case of uh, a, a kind of trans person living in the 20th century. Um, and it, and there were all of these sporadic stories that I found in the archives where people were talking about these kind of sporadic blips of media attention. Um, and, and so, you know, in, in one way, uh, and this is not to, to lay all the blame on the media, but I think that there is often a kind of uh, in trying to report stories about trans people in order to make it quote unquote newsworthy, it's often framed as look at this new phenomena. I mean, it, it gets declared as new re repeatedly over the last uh, 60, 70 years. Um, but I think that there's a, a kind of more substantial um, uh, problem to thinking about transness as new, which is it uh, has to. To, to have that kind of assessment is to also uh, not fully have a definition of what it is to be trans. Um, and so, you know, often people imagine, um, as Christine Jorgensen's story uh, bears out, that in order to live a trans life, one must uh, make certain kinds of medical arrangements. But there are all kinds of ways that people live trans lives. Um, and that was something that I really attended to in the third chapter with a whole bunch of folks who um, often, by reason of being working class and poor and black, were, even if they wanted to medically transition, um, they were disallowed from doing that. Um, I'd also say, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, that we're talking a little bit about social media and about the communities that are being formed in social media. I think there's such an important function in terms of uh, what it means to have, uh, 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 I guess, for lack of a better way of talking about it, I guess, internal communities, ones in which lots of learning um, can and does occur where people feel uh, less isolated if they live in communities in which they don't seem to, to uh, have any other trans people living um, in their uh, environment, in their kind of neighborhoods or in their local environment. But I also think that, you know, and this is something that I've pursued across my work, uh, that there are also a, a number of thorny issues when we get to the question of visibility. You know, visibility is not the antidote to, uh, to, to violence. In fact, in some ways, visibility can become um, the very, uh, one, of the, one of the very techniques in which violence becomes more ratcheted up for, for various communities. 
We are speaking with C. Riley Snorton, author of the award-winning book, Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity. You can find Riley on Twitter at C. Riley Snorton. You mentioned an Advocate.com article headlined, Victim Number 17, Trans Woman of Color Murdered in Missouri. And you write that the recurrent practice of enumerating the dead and mass in social media uh, seems to conform to the logics of accumulation that structure racial capitalism in which the quantified abstraction of black and trans deaths reveals the calculated value of black and trans lives through states' grammars of deficit and debt. Then you quote gender studies scholar Catherine McKittick uh, explaining about the long durée of slavery. This is where we uh, begin. This is where historic blackness comes from, the list, the breathless numbers, the absolute economic, the mathematics of unliving. Where do you see that mathematics of unliving still being applied today? Yeah, I mean, I think that we are still, uh, you know, in a, a, a mode of uh, accounting for uh, death as a way of trying to um, make uh, as a as one rhetorical uh, tool to make a demand about the urgency of attending to the life chances of Black and trans people, and I un I, I know that that has been a technique that people have used. I came out of of uh, nonprofit and activist work before going into graduate school, and very frequently. I would need to sort of cite the statistic as a way of uh, grounding a particular uh, claim for um, a, a kind of different policy in relation to uh, communities of color and, and queer and trans people. But part of what I, I you know, in, in raising that question and inciting Catherine McKittrick's work is I wanted to talk about that kind of the kind of tyranny of numbers ones in which death uh, seem to be um, uh, made into a ledger uh, for a, a set of policies in which it's, it's often unclear if those policies uh, might even touch what it means to have uh, enhanced life chances uh, for black and brown trans people. Um, I think the other piece of it is that, uh, you know, there is, as long as we kind of live in a ratio in which uh, wealth accumulation um, stands above uh, and far outmeasures uh, our understanding of what it means to value, um, um, uh, in some ways, I, I, the, the word that comes to mind is, is livability, to value livability, then we will kind of constantly be in a kind of compounding um, structure of uh, dispossession and death. Uh, and so I, you know, wanted to sort of point to what is the underbelly of, uh, of a kind of statistical, a kind of rush to a statistical calculation in order to talk about um, what I think are much more um, intimate material conditions that have to be uh, addressed, and also communities 
that are so deeply shaped by grief uh, that, you know, give rise to uh, a number of, of, of interventions that have been made in relation to the movement for Black Lives, uh, the movement for uh, uh, and in kind of uh, in, in trans uh, liberation struggles as well, which is the practice of saying their names, the practice of being in ritual with each other, um, that that grief doesn't always uh, need to turn into uh, a kind of demand, of, of particularly a demand of the state. You write that uh, a queer politic based on analysis of analyses of power rather than a fraught sense of shared identity. You mentioned that. How do queer politics differ when they are considered through a power analysis rather than a sense of some shared identity? How does that change the way queer politics are viewed and applied? Yeah, so that that, um, that notion is something that uh, I feel deeply grateful to uh, my colleague, Kathy Cohen, um, who you know, writing that in 1997 was pointing to uh, the ways that uh, queer uh, political uh, and social movements uh, were thinking too narrowly about the uh, ways that uh, the government and uh, and and society marginalized certain forms of sexuality. So in her argument, she suggests, you know, if we're really going to think about what what distinguishes queer, let's say, from what it means to be gay or lesbian, then we have to think about who is queered by the state. And she um, explicitly draws on the kind of figures of uh, the welfare queen, quote unquote, the kind of, um, um, you know, uh, myth. The, the myth of the welfare queen on the kind of conservative rhetorical device that was used to um, to punish um, the uh, uh, black women and you know obviously we know welfare is not uh, 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 it was not ever really in a, in a position of serving black women above and beyond um, other uh, communities in the U.S. but for her, she was suggesting that queer folks needed to get more um, rigorous around who it was that was being marginalized by way of their sexuality, rather than thinking about it as a kind of form of orientation. And I think as we think about kind of trans politics, rather than thinking about it as, well, there's, you know, um, the language of cisgender or non-trans people and trans people we could really start to think about what limits people's gender self-determination, how does gender self-determination um, intersect with so many other forms of, uh, of what it means to have uh, a sense of autonomy, uh, of bodily autonomy. Um, so, so, so as a practical example, I think that trans rights movement and um, you know the, the kind of freedom to choose movement, or uh, uh, need to be up to some big forms of collaboration. We're talking about bodily autonomy here. I think when we're talking, when when we're asking questions about um, sex work 
and uh, and it how is it how can it exist because we know it exists in ways that actually protect sex workers that there's absolutely a trans dimension to that um, and you know as the the kind of um, uh, the 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 small uh, in in some ways the the kind of media attention um, that surrounded uh, Jim Set Gutierrez when uh, she protested Obama around uh, not thinking about the trans uh, dimensions of uh, the treatment of folks in detention centers. Or, uh, you know, we can think about uh, what it means that uh, so much activism um, uh, among radical trans folks has been has had a lot to do with prison abolition work. So, in some ways, um, to kind of get to this idea of what does it mean to like not think in the kind of understanding of uh, us versus them politics or a uh, project uh, that is around the kind of identity itself, but to think about in what ways might groups of people be uh, uh, able to access uh, enhanced uh, livability. Um, by way of uh, forming a coalition that is um, precisely thinking through the logics of power that constrain folks across various orientations uh, and, and, and to think more institutionally and systematically than thinking um, identitarianly. You mentioned Blake Brockington, a black trans man who garnered national attention in 2014 as the first out trans homecoming king in North Carolina. You write how Brockington described the attention he received after his homecoming win as the hardest part of his trans journey. And then you quote Brockington saying, really hateful things were said on the internet. It was hard. I saw how narrow-minded the world really is. Then you quote Brockington elaborating in the short documentary, Brock King Tin, because he was the homecoming king. I've had people call me a tranny, a dyke. I've had people call me he, she, it, thing. You know, they called me homecoming thing and called me a pervert and an abomination, different things. I've gotten a lot of different things. You add the list of different things echoes what literary critic Hortense Spillers has described as a meeting ground of investments and privations in the national treasury of rhetorical wealth. We have all these kinds of insults within the American lexicon because we are a racist nation, because we have gender variant exclusion. Different countries come up, different languages come up with different words because they need to label that thing within their culture and society. We have all these words because we are a society that is unfortunately too often driven by hate. How much does language in the U.S. reveal anti-black, anti-trans bias? How much does our language reveal our bias and our hate to others? No, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, the list that that Brockington, um, you know, describes in the documentary, uh, you know, is it's obviously uh, painful to hear. It was very painful for him, um, and it's only a sliver. Um, you know, I think that in in some ways uh, we can be attuned to um, to language that is uh, uh, intentionally hateful. I think there's also uh, a way of thinking about 
Um, and, and I think we've seen this happen over time in terms of people, uh, you know, there's been so many people who, who in, in uh, media culture who are like, oh, I just didn't know um, that uh, tranny was a derogatory word until recently, as if they're having their own kind of coming, uh, coming out story around uh, the kind of language that was so deeply ingrained in how they came to think about community um, that uh, um, uh, uh, that they, they realized that the kind of um, ma- making use of those that, that making use of that kind of language was actually hurtful to people. Um, and so, you know, in in relation to what uh, what you're asking, um, what I what I want to just firmly underline is that. Yes, we have uh, an incredible amount of hurtful and hateful speech. Um, we also make use of phrases and terms every day that have anti-Black, anti-trans, uh, anti-worker, uh, 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 sexist, um, um, histories, origins, connotations. Um, and so, you know, uh, language is an expression of uh, the kind of... Um, cultural scripts. Uh, they are the inheritances. Uh, they are a form of inheritance. Uh, but language is also something that can be remade. Um, and, you know, I, I think that this is, this is kind of going to a slightly different point, but, you know, I think that this also in some ways has a bearing on the kind of performative um, exhaustion around the expansion of the acronym to describe, uh, you know, LGBTIQA uh, communities as if the kind of proliferation of language exhausts people. Um, But we might also think about that proliferation of language as another vector of uh, remaking what it means for people to try to um, live in the world in language when there is already so much language that that um, makes the world feel unlivable. You describe how in a November 2014 photograph of Brockington, uh, he's dressed in all black. Brockington wears a shirt that bears a list of names conjoined by ampersands and finished with an ellipsis. Emmett and Amadou and Sean and Oscar and Trayvon and Jordan and Eric and Mike and Ezel. And a few months later, his own name occupied the elliptical space. Uh, an article published on Advocate.com on March 24, 2015, the day after Brockington's death, notes that Brockington's death was the sixth reported suicide of a trans youth in the United States that year in an epidemic that trans advocates say they see as uh, far more casualties than are actually noted by the media. How can criminalizing black and gender variant lives be seen as causing Brockington's death? How can that unliving, how could his perception that he is not as alive as others lead to Brockington killing himself? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, I think that when we think about people who are um, committing suicide or killing themselves, um, in relation to not being able to imagine uh, a livable world um, is precisely, um, as you state in the question, 
uh, a matter of uh, thinking about, uh, of rethinking what life means um, when it seems that uh, the inevitability is premature death. Um, you know, I think when I was writing this book, I, you know, I was writing from rural New York uh, for part of it. Uh, and I thought a lot about uh, Blake, who was living in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, for some part, and um, came from a smaller town in North Carolina before then. And um, when one sense of uh, Black and trans life is often marked by and remarked upon um, the premature death of uh, the communities that uh, that I come from, that Blake came from, um, it it produces a different kind of relationship to uh, what what it means to survive. Um, I'm always interested in etymology, and you know, survival is a word that it, you know, according to this Latin root, means to be above or beyond life. Um, it, it suggests to me then the kind of effort of living. Um, and I think, you know, for Blake, uh, he was an activist. Uh, he was, uh, he, he received a great amount of, of visibility, uh, visibility that in fact was incredibly uh, uh, difficult to, to, um, encounter to, to face um, and you know the, the the kind of structures for his survival uh, you know I, and and this is not diminish the communities I've met people who know Blake um, or, or who knew Blake uh, this is not to diminish his communities but it is to say that um, you know there is a real uh, question about uh, thinking about black and trans life um, in in terms of uh, what would make that life not uh, not predictably, and this is, I guess, a kind of riff on our earlier conversation on statistics, not predictably um, about uh, a kind of uh, inevitable or uh, uh, exposure to premature death. You write that trans in each of its permutations finds expression and continuous circulation within blackness, and blackness is transected by embodied procedures that fall under the sign of gender. How is, because this is a really important part of your book, obviously, how is trans within blackness, and how does blackness fall under gender? Aren't they two completely different identities, one based on race and the other based on gender? (laughs) So, uh, you know, the title of the book, Black on Both Sides, is a play on uh, what trans as a uh, prefix is is supposed to um, imagine, right? So trans means to go across something, and part of the uh, the the book's title is to suggest that even if we get across, uh, let's say gender, that we're still consumed within the logic of uh, blackness and anti-blackness. Um, so, you know, often we think about race and gender as having uh, different kind of 
cultural and scientific um, genealogies. And in some ways, you know, I use the language of transversal, so, you know, they're, they're not completely symmetrical. I'm not trying to suggest that they are exactly the same. But in fact, you know, the context of gender, uh, like, uh, let's say, uh, scientific understanding of gender took root in the height of the kind of racist pseudoscience. And so the kinds of ways that uh, we think about kind of sex as a biology, gender as a kind of category that complements the, the kind of biological category of sex, were swirling around with a whole host of questions uh, in scientific discourse uh, that had to do with notions of race and species. I think we can also look uh, at, uh, you know, something that Horton Spillers says quite succinctly, that in the U.S. that's premised on a theft of body and the theft of land, we lose at least gender difference as the outcome. Um, and so to be dispossessed of one's body um, as a kind of uh, consequence of the transatlantic slave trade means that the kind of articulation of blackness is not only the kind of uh, ground from which we can imagine um, uh, uh, you know, blackness is not only the um, the the node uh, of absolute uh, otherness in a white supremacist paradigm, uh, but that blackness itself is also deeply imbued with questions of gender when gender was uh, a category of dispossession. Um, and so those are some; those are just a couple of the ways that I'm trying to tease out these relationships between blackness and transness over time. That in fact, science doesn't get us out of thinking about these things as, as intertwined. And that certainly culturally, uh, we can't think about these things as not being intertwined. You know, much like people use the language of racial capitalism to, to, to denote the way that capitalism works to produce and also, um, uh, what's the word, agitate forms of, uh, of white supremacist uh, uh, racial hierarchy and difference. Um, I also think about gender as needing to be um, uh, modified by the notion of race. So we think about racialized gender uh, as a kind of... Um, ideology that structures how gender is lived. And we can think about this in, you know, mundane ways as well, uh, that uh, the kind of notion of, of quote-unquote, idealized femininity is a uh, is premised upon uh, a, a kind of white conception of beauty. Um, that is a very, you know, um, uh, uh, that is a conversation that I think we can also uh, think on uh, along and within or within a prism of the various ways that um, gender expression, gender identity gets read through um, race and often racist uh, 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 visualizing logic. And you quote a gender theorist Susan Stryker, political scientist Paisley Curra, and sociologist Lisa Jean Moore writing about the narrow politics of gender identity. 
what is meant by the narrow politics of gender identity? How are gender politics narrow? Because uh, I had somebody tell me the other day that they didn't think that gender politics were narrow, that they're always expanding as places like Facebook now recognize 56 different gender identities. So how is uh, does a, does a broad range of gender identities not in- necessarily overcome narrow gender identity politics? Well, I think two things there. I mean, when when I cite uh, Stryker, Stryker, Paisley, and Cura, I'm uh, thinking about, sorry, uh, Stryker, Moore, and uh, Paisley. I am um, I'm gesturing toward the idea that we can think about transness without without necessarily um, always attaching that to the notion of gender. Uh, and so that's an argument that um, folks in transgender studies uh, are, are articulating, that the kind of methods, modes, questions, and insights of transgender studies is not so that we can better know trans people necessarily, that we can think about them, um, you know, that, that there is something that could be useful, for example, about a kind of trans analysis of the state, uh, think normalized by being faith or a kind of trans analysis of, um, of, of capitalism, that, that there is a, a kind of analytic thrust uh, to, uh, that, is, that, that has a relationship, although not an exclusive one, to um, a trans ways of life. Um, I think there's another piece there, which is about a kind of, you know, as we, uh, you know, Facebook's 56 uh, gender designation, um, you know, that's, I, I, I've been quite curious. I, I hope that at some point I'll, I'll get a chance to, to know more about the story of how that took place on Facebook. I find it fascinating. Um, but it does not, uh, you know, I think, I think we're also in, uh, a moment where people characterize, for example, forms of inclusion by saying, oh, this is an event for, uh, women, cis and trans. And the very that very shorthand, that very um, quick way of of trying to note who is invited um, is also kind of uh, it 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 amplifies uh, the kind of dichotomous thinking around gender um, that you know uh, I think some at least some people uh, it, who uh, live as trans or who are thinking about gender like trans and I'm going to put a space, trans space gender politics, so not necessarily uh, transgender liberation movements per se, but those folks who want to think trans inclusively um, often end up uh, um, uh, un- perhaps unwittingly or, 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 or not reaffirming dichotomous gender. Um, you know, there, there are many ways in which, um, you know, folks are finding um, uh, ways to express themselves in language, and and it's also still quite clear um, that the idea that gender is something that we possess, um, what, rather than maybe it's a category of dispossession, um, uh, is a, a kind of common sense of how uh, people who are not gender variant understand their lives. But perhaps in thinking um, 
about the violent ways that gender has been um, impressed upon uh, so many bodies, trans and non-trans, uh, we can we can move to a politic uh, or at least a, pol- a public political discourse um, that gives rise to the expansiveness of the ways uh, that that gender um, and transgender uh, um, inflect uh, the social world. You know, one of the things that I used to say uh, before the book came out is that it may be more useful to think of gender not as a category to be possessed, uh, but as a strategy for living. Um, and that it, that might open up a way to think more expansively across uh, a, a kind of new uh, dichotomy, right? Not just man and woman, but cis and trans as these kind of very fixed sites in which one is either or. Um, it, it, it's, it's a question, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of profound question for me about what does it mean to um, approach social problems, to approach uh, social identification um, in ways that refuse uh, a kind of binary way of, uh, of, of a binary mode of classification. We have been speaking with C. Riley Snorton, author of the award-winning book Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity. Uh, Black on Both Sides won the Lambda Literary Award for Transgender Nonfiction, was named an American Library Association Stonewall Honor Book. Riley is Associate Professor of Africana Studies and Feminist Gender and Sexuality Studies at Cornell University and Visiting Associate Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Riley's previous book was 2014's Nobody is Supposed to Know, Black Sexuality on the Down Low. And you can find Riley on Twitter at C. Riley Snorton. That's R-I-L-E-Y. One last question, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. But I looked at my question from hell for you for this week, and I just didn't like it all that much. So I want to get back to a point that you made, that you uh, that you make in your book, because I, I think this is incredibly important for people to understand your perspective, because we've only skimmed the surface of black on both sides, a radical history of trans identity. How are sex and gender racial arrangements? Great. I'll, um, thank you for that, that question from hell. So, uh, you know, the first part of the book is deeply uh, thinking through uh, some uh, difficult, difficult archives. Um, the short answer to that is sex and gender are racial arrangements because they are premised on um, the idea of flesh, uh, flesh in, uh, in particularly in the medical sense, uh, what it means to have a body that can be operated upon um, was distinguished according to who was perceived to be um, uh, who, who was perceived to be able to be experimented upon. And so my first chapter looks at J. Marion's son, uh, lionized as the father of gynecology, the recent stories about his statue being taken down at Central Park, um, who uh, 
over the course of several years, um, medically experimented without anesthesia on, uh, it's estimated up to 12 uh, captive uh, black women um, toward the cure for vesicle vaginal fistula. Um, one of the arguments that I make is that, you know, as, as he, his whole procedure is premised on uh, not thinking about uh, the kind of a, a black women as being outside of the vestiges of womanhood. Um, by which I mean that in a moment where gynecologists weren't even looking at their white female patients, he spends copious, copious, he, he writes copious, copious detailed notes, invites all of his colleagues uh, frequently to watch him perform these uh, uh, medical experiments on captive black women. So in, in one sense, um, there, and this is a distinction that I get from Spiller, uh, that there's a, that there is some, that, that what we know of as flesh is distinct from what it means to have a body, that a flesh can be a kind of site of medical experimentation, that a body gets to be the kind of marker of personhood and the, and the archive of J. Marion Sims. Um, uh, seems, bears out this distinction in which the very notion of what it means to have women, uh, 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 women's medicine um, is premised on uh, experimenting on a group of people who would be disparaged from the kind of uh, vestiges, particularly cultural, but also material vestiges of womanhood. Um, I also just want to just make a, a quick, uh, I, I guess, correction slash announcement, which is that I am now Chicago-based. I'm at the University of Chicago as a professor of English and Gender and Sexuality Studies. Um, I hope that that gets to to some of that, some of the uh, the tenets of the question from hell. Um, even though you know, there's a lot of different ways that I'm trying to to pour that out in the book. And I guess the shorthand way of saying it is that. Uh, the, the notion of, of, of sex science has been deeply, deeply, deeply uh, shaped, inflected by uh, uh, kind of theories of race. And so they're, it's contaminated by race um, in such a way that even what we think of as a neat division of sex and gender um, is also deeply contaminated by race in such a way uh, that we can't even think about that kind of clean break. What is sex, i.e., what is the science of the body? What is gender, i.e., what is the culture of the body? Uh, without thinking about all of uh, the ways that um, the question of race and species um, uh, kind of mixed that all up. Riley, this has been a fascinating conversation in your book. Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity is fantastic. You can find out more. You can follow Riley on Twitter at C. Riley Snorton. That's R-I-L-E-Y. And now that I know you're in Chicago, I'm going to be bugging you to uh, buy you a beer or something because I really appreciate this conversation. Your book is fantastic. And like I said before, we've only skimmed the surface of this book. If people want to really know exactly what's in this book, you got to read it. It really is uh, very enlightening. Again, Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity. Identity. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Oh, 
thanks so much, Chuck, and I uh, look forward to following up about that beer. All right. Thank you, Riley. This, <laughs> All right. This okay. is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. A new prostitution ordinance in Chicago could lead to more police abuse and the further criminalization of trans people and people of color. How do we know? Because the exact same ordinance has been applied elsewhere, and not only did it lead to abuse, but it also led to constitutional challenges that overturned the new law. We'll find out why they keep applying bad laws to trans bodies and those of color in a few when we hear from attorney Andrea J. Ritchie, who is co-author with community organizer Britt Schulte of the TruthOut.com article, Prostitution-Related Loitering Ordinance Promotes Racial Profiling in Chicago. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what will be the final vape flavor? What will be the final vape flavor? All replies get read on air right now. Our favorite wins the new This Is Hell tote bag. Far higher quality of material than the last one, and a cool design, which you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support tomorrow, once we've updated our website. Or if you drop by tomorrow during gallery hours at Second Story Studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. tomorrow, and today as well, but I'm going to be over there tomorrow. You can also check out all of our swag and the art show every Wednesday evening during This Is Hell office hours, which is at the studio and Carrie's Lounge as well. Again, the question from Mel is, what will be the final vape flavor? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio. And uh, there you go. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from hell because... Yeah, it's the most ever, so i got to go real fast. Uh, Matt M. Don't go f- too fast so people can't hear you. If I, I know, get an email from Ronaldo complaining. Oh, did you? Uh, no, I have before. Oh, uh, the final flavor we vape will be the salesman who sold us the cartridge. <laughs> that was Matt M. Dylan V. says, geoengineering preparation serum. <laughs> R.E.H. says, white tears. <laughs> white tears? Who Fig- said that? That was R.E.H. All right. Uh, Figgy N. says, the ashes of the prophet I beheaded. <laughs> Chris M. says, the cremated remains of your loved ones. Adam D. says, God. Aww. Chris F. says, butric acid. Billy D. <laughs> says, blended bourgeois. <laughs> Jason L. says, power caller by Equivapian Incorporated. <laughs> Mark uh. A.S. says, bacon. Mike M. says, <laughs> pulmonary chai latte. Eric H. says, honky inferno. John S. says, these nuts. <laughs> what will be the final vape flavor? Bradley R., and this was Alex's Friday night pick to click, said, sarcophagus water. <laughs> Thomas S. says, fresh air. Gabriel C. says, necrophilia. Dan <laughs> K. says, strontium 90. Aaron B. says, cancer melon. Scott S. says, Chernobyl choke. Stephen S. says, Heat Death of the Universe, a mixture of sriracha, tapatio, tabasco, cholula, wasabi, literal fire, and the taste of that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead. No, at least that was well thought out. Jeffy B. says, my ass. Mike M. says, Flint Vape ta- or Flint Tap Vape. Toussaint K. says, Eschatological Apple. <laughs> Joseph D. says, McDonald's Big Mac. Ugh. Jennifer S. says, Soylent Green. What will be the final vape flavor? Charlie N. says, fresh drinking water. (laughs) Daniel A. says, the friends we made along the way. Lisa L. says, orangutan. (laughs) Matt P. says, lemon meringue. That is, once we make ass breath killers smokable. And he links to the Boots Riley song, Ass Breath Killers, which you should probably check out. 
Corey G says rich people as they are the only ethical thing left or consume under late capitalism. <laughs> Caitlin C says regret. Mindy H <laughs> says plastic straw, Barry. <laughs> Daniel W says soylent vape juice is made out of people. Micah or Mika D says beard. <laughs> Aaron D says Captain Capitalist Crunch with entrepreneur berries and yes, uh, Captain Capitalist and Crunch all had K's in them. Lisa B says deviled egg. John P says flaming chode. Mike A says watermelon Manafort. Joel C says the taste and smell of being in a forest from your vape will be uh, the taste and smell of being in a forest from your vape will be consolation as you traverse the polluted moonscape that was once the earth as we now know it. Oh, that's happy. Nathan T says depleted uranium. <laughs> Kim F says raspberry poo. <laughs> Rosario R says hope. Wally R says American pale ale. Bill E says radiation. Sarah A says Takis fuego. <laughs> Nicholas M says cigarettes. Scott M says vanilla ice nine. What will be the last vape flavor? Camillo P says briny Mars water. Joshua J says mother-in-law's basement. <laughs> Matt M says grape. Andrew T says moxygen. <laughs> uh, what does uh, Austin H says? What does, what does straight carbon dioxide taste like? <laughs> Sarah M says popcorn lung. Uh, Jonathan R says Keebler ether. Benjamin C says soylent green. Pammy H says gasoline. Josh S. Trump's filthy pie hole. Fred L. says Kim Kardashian's fart flavor and people will buy it. <laughs> Jesse W. says fresh caught sea trash. Fabio L. Soylent green. Gentaris D. says pumpkin spice with a subtle hint of despair. <laughs> Absentee says bourgeois blood. Jessica P. says the immaculate fix. Alexandra N. says summer rain gan. <laughs> Jeffy D. says Novi chalk. Andrea, Alexandra C. says, Teething Biscuit. Uh, Jeff D., a different Jeff D., says, Brimstone Surprise. Chandler H. says, The Spice Melange. Fergus F. says, Tropical Polar Bear. What will be the final vape flavor, Gorilla G.? says Is that, it Tropical Polar Bear? That was Fergus F. A Gorilla G. says, That lingering citrusy something after you've removed all the pineapple from your pizza. Don't take that kind of abuse here, Gorilla G. We're a uh, pineapple on your pizza friendly podcast. Oliver J says fresh air. Stephen B says horse meat and hazelnut. <laughs> Joanne C says money because that's what you're burning up. John M says wet blanket. Michael C says creme flesh. <laughs> Matt Max S says the liquefied remains of the tobacco lobby with slight hints of maple and blueberry. Patrick M says when you're blindfolded and put up against the wall, you don't think about the flavors. <laughs> A couple more. Stephen C says carbon fiber. Fiber. Mark R says Lacroix. <laughs> Uh, Bonenza B says breathable air. Jack B says the pheromones of contentment. Nikki, e, candy ginger, more highly addictive than crack. Eric T says Jefferson's Malort. <laughs> Stephen S says whippets. Eric K says soma. Stephen S says oxygen. And Mark A says whatever fruit is left after the bees are gone. <laughs> A couple more. Let me just look at the responses on Twitter and then we're all good. Uh, Platimer P says double bubble heat death. Um, Melvin F says, I thought hash was the only flavor. Gorgeous Greg says, a special blend called Snoop Dogg, earthy, mushroomy, plutonium laced with a hint of tritium and Moroccan mint. Gender T says, gasoline. Graham M says, Jeffrey Dahmer's fridge. <laughs> and Trabant says, clean air. So I liked R-E-H, White Tears, Adam D, God, Lisa L, Orangutan. I just didn't get it, but I like it. Uh, Caitlin C, Regret, Rosario saying Hope. 
Fergus F. saying, uh, was it Tropical Polar Bear? Michael C. Creme Fresh. Uh, I'm going to go with orangutan because I have no idea why that would be a vape flavor. And it's so bizarre from all the rest. So Lisa L., you are the winner of this week's question from hell, and we'll be sending you a This Is Hell tote bag. All you have to do is send us your mailing address via Facebook. Uh, let's see. My response to this week's question from hell, what will be the final vape flavor? Marijuana. It's actually going to taste like marijuana, not like bubble gum or candy or anything, but freaking marijuana. Why can't vape taste like marijuana? So again, our winner this week is Lisa L. for saying the final vape flavor will be, and I don't know why, orangutan. This is Hell Office Hours. Happen this and every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Savannah, the bar downstairs from This is Hell's office and soon our studio as well. Drop by the bar this Wednesday evening, any Wednesday evening. Hang out, chat me up. I'll give you a free book related to the show, maybe if I remember, just for dropping by. And, uh, you know, I'll also give you some of those This Is Hell subvertising stickers. Come on in, say hello, watch me drink. It's a lot of fun. This Is Hell Office Hours, Wednesdays from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. I want to thank the people who did drop by this past Wednesday. I didn't write down every, anyone's name because I was still reeling on Wednesday from the party last weekend, the anniversary party. So let's see if I can remember. Uh, let's see. Wally was there. Uh, George. Uh, Shankar. I think I saw Joel. I know Brian was there, as was producer Alex, the newest member of our crew, Leo. I know Theron was upstairs putting the studio together. Laura was at the bar putting up posters announcing weekend gallery hours from 3 to 6 p.m. At this is uh, for the This Is Art, uh, the art show upstairs. I'm certain there were other people there, but the last week is kind of a big blur. So if I'm forgetting anyone, my apologies. Oh, and raffle winners Jordan and Elliot were there, too. And you can talk me up and get free books and subvertising stickers at This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Coming up on This Is Hell, a new prostitution ordinance in Chicago resembles anti-prostitution ordinances across the country that even anti-trafficking groups oppose. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell with a moment of truth when Jeff Dorchin ponders outliving his own usefulness. Uh, all that stuff. Plus, we might get back into listener feedback. We got some things to tell you about Patreon podcasts. We want to thank some people for supporting This Is Hell, sharing the show online. There's no chance we're getting twist off knowledge. But we will be telling you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Live from the planet where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing, This Is Hell. Why would Chicago consider an anti-prostitution ordinance that when it's been tried in other cities before, the program was not only a failure, but led to so much abuse, even anti-trafficking groups pulled their support from the program. Here to help us learn about a dumb new plan for Chicago, attorney Andrea J. Ritchie is co-author with community organizer Britt Schulte of the Truthout.com article, Prostitution-Related Loitering Ordinance Promotes Racial Profiling in Chicago. Welcome to This Is Hell, Andrea. Thanks so much for having me on. Andrea's latest book is Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. Find out more about Andrea at Andrea J. Ritchie, R-I-T-C-H-I-E dot com. And you can follow her on Twitter at uh, Drea, D-R-E-A-N-Y-C, one, two, three. 
So uh, you write that in an ill-advised move last month, the Chicago City Council passed an ordinance that makes prostitution-related loitering a prosecutable offense defined as remaining in any one place under circumstances that would warrant a reasonable person to believe that the purpose or effect of that behavior is to facilitate prostitution. I love the phrase reasonable person in there. The language of the new statute mirrors uh, cities gang-related and uh, narcotics-related loitering statutes, which have been widely criticized for giving officers carte blanche to engage in blatant racial profiling and populate a gang database with the names of people as young as one year of age on the flimsiest of presumptions. But I know that kid's in a gang. I know that kid's in a gang. Andrea, how close are we to getting to a point where Chicago police can stop, pull over, question, even search anyone at any time. Uh, We're there, and we've been there for a long time. Chicago has a long history of making it possible for police officers to arrest people for basically hanging around outside. That's what loitering is. It means being outside in a public place. Um, And so, as many people know, Chicago's gang-related ordinance, uh, the first one it passed, was a subject of a Supreme Court decision in 1999 in Chicago versus Morales, where the Supreme Court said, you can't just arrest people for hanging around outside because you think that they might be involved in a gang. Um, You have to be more specific. um, Otherwise, you run afoul of the Constitution's due process guarantees, which say that people should be able to know what's against the law so they can govern their conduct accordingly. But in Chicago, it's long been the law that police can just arrest um, and uh, people for hanging around outside, and the people they arrest for hanging around outside are black and brown people almost exclusively. So that's long been the history in Chicago. It's long been the history in Chicago when it comes to gang-related uh, loitering, uh, drug-related loitering, and now prostitution-related loitering. And um, this new bill just makes it a lot easier for police to do that in ways that are deeply gendered. In other words, gang-related loitering is something that people perceive you know, black and brown men to be doing. Narcotics-related loitering is something they perceive black and brown people of all genders to be doing often. And now prostitution-related loitering is something that's very specific to black women, whether they're trans or not trans, queer or not queer, um, and brown Latina and Asian women. Um, so it's, it's already the case in Chicago. It's been the case uh, throughout Chicago's history, but this law just makes it a lot easier for police to target particularly black, brown um, uh, women on the street corners. Why criminalized being hanging out outside? In your opinion, why do you think the, the law enforcement, why do you think the police department decides to do this? Do you think they decide to do this through a perspective of security and safety, or is this something that is politically motivated? Why criminalized hanging out outside? Loitering laws are basically sort of the the current version of old time vagrancy laws, which and all of those kinds of laws that are about regulating uh, the movement of bodies in public spaces have always been about regulating black and brown bodies in public spaces. You know, when slave patrols were abolished, then laws were put in place where police officers could stop anyone they perceived to be a vagrant, which meant that they could pick up any black person who was outside and police their behavior, their movement, um, and put them in jail on the flimsiest of pretexts. That's something that has a long history through vagrancy laws. Those were struck down as too vague, as discriminatorily enforced, and so cities came back with loitering laws. And um, so the idea is really to regulate black and brown bodies' presence and movements in public spaces. That's what they've been used for throughout history. That's what's happening now. So this is the police 
institutionalism of racism? That's certainly what's driving the enforcement of it. I think um, what politicians are trying to do when they're passing these kinds of laws is sort of um, regulate and police the effects of uh, economic and uh, social disinvestment from communities like the west side of Chicago. So in other words, when people have nowhere to live, when people have um, no way to earn an income, don't have a guaranteed living wage income, and are hustling uh, by any means to survive um, and put food on the table and clothes on their backs and uh, support their families, then that's the, the response is to then police um, presence in public spaces and activities that are perceived to be um, sort of disrupting public spaces for folks who are not experiencing those economic effects. And that that is a really short-sighted solution to structural and systemic problems. And, and I think that's where we really need to hold our politicians accountable for instead of investing in communities where people are struggling to survive um, in whatever ways they can, they simply pass laws that make it possible for police to, as you said at the beginning of the show, roll up on just about anyone and throw them in the back of the police car, take them to the police precinct, charge them with something that will lead to a fine, which if you're already out there doing what you got to do to survive, I'm not sure how they think you're going to pay this fine. Right. So you're actually furthering the problem. And then, you know, locking you up for five days in Cook County Jail, which is certainly not going to improve your economic situation and probably will make it worse. So it's a really short-sighted solution that actually contributes to the problems that politicians think or say that they're about um, addressing when they pass these kinds of laws. It's really about policing poor people, black people, brown people, and people who are suffering from lack of investment in communities. The criminalization of poverty, the the criminalization of race, the criminalization of being trans, uh, because this is the question that's always asked. And if it's not asked, we're asked why it wasn't. Uh, what would you say to someone who argues, God, I really hate this question, so I apologize. What would you say to someone who argues, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to worry about. So if you are critical of this policy, it's implied that you must have something to hide. You must be a criminal. What would you say to somebody who says, hey, if you don't have anything to hide, there's no problem with this ordinance? The problem with this ordinance is it doesn't say even what is being criminalized. I mean, how can you tell that someone who's standing on a corner is doing so with the intention of engaging in prostitution as opposed to the intention of hailing a cab, the intention of talking to people in their neighborhood, the intention of maybe, you know, meeting someone but not for a commercial transaction, uh, or with the intention of just getting some fresh air because they live in an overcrowded apartment where there's, you know, double the number of people living there who should be because no one can afford their own housing. I mean, there's so many reasons a person can be standing outside, so there's there are many people who have nothing to hide and who are doing nothing wrong, but because of their uh, race, because of their gender, because of their sexuality, because of their gender identity and expression, their presence in public spaces is presumed to be about an intention to either sell drugs, engage in gang-related activity, or engage in prostitution, or all three. And so um, the the reason that these statutes often are subject to constitutional challenge is because they are so vague that they sweep up a lot of folks who are doing nothing wrong, um, but are judged by police through racial profiling, through stereotypes, through assumptions that are deeply rooted in structural racism to be up to no good just because they're outside. So then let's, uh, I don't know, talk about those stereotypes or generalizations. Uh, why? Uh, well, for to what extent is trans behavior seen by police as behavior that would suggest the possibility of prostitution? And why? 
do they believe that trans behavior is seen by police as uh, suggesting possibility of prostitution? I mean, this is all; these are all patterns that are deeply historically rooted, and I would say that it's both uh, it's black women who are both trans and not trans who are historically and continue to be seen as folks who are inherently engaged in prostitution, and that is dates back to slavery, dates back to Jim Crow, dates back to the history of Chicago when um, areas where black women were um, engaged in you know, presence in public spaces were deeply and heavily policed around what used to be known as a levee, which is a Dearborn station. Um, and people write about how police officers would just scoop up black women on the street, no matter what they were doing, on the assumption that they must be engaged in prostitution. And then people who are seen as gender nonconforming, who are seen as quote-unquote cross-dressing, have also historically been perceived by police to therefore, because their their um, gender identity is being expressed in a way that uh, is perceived to be different, must signal that they're also intending to engage in some kind of deviant sexuality. Those are stereotypes that are deeply rooted in history. They're deeply rooted in the history of policing. Um, some of the first police forces were formed to enforce ordinances like this, to regulate public spaces, to rid public spaces of bodies that were perceived to be, quote-unquote, too ugly, right, to regulate the presence of disabled people in public spaces, to regulate cross-dressing, and to regulate perceived prostitution. And those things got melded in the minds of police officers, such that anyone who was perceived to be cross-dressing or expressing a different gender identity was also perceived to be engaged in prostitution, and got melded with historical stereotypes rooted in slavery that black women are inherently promiscuous or inherently um, engaged in sexually deviant behavior that were promoted to justify the systemic rape of black women during slavery. Those stereotypes persist, such that now, you know, I remember a couple of years ago at Pride, I was standing on you know, in Boys Town on the corner with another black woman, and we were both in our phones trying to meet up with people or whatever, and at some point we both looked at each other and said, we need to get off this corner or we're going to get pulled We're gonna get pulled over, we're going to get stopped, we're going to get arrested, because the assumption is if you're standing on the corner as a black woman, through these stereotypes of history, whether you're trans or not trans, the assumption is you're engaged in prostitution. And that's reflected in historical um, statistics of prostitution arrests here in Chicago and continue to be reflected in statistics of prostitution arrests across the country. Yeah, that's crazy that, that, that this ordinance would actually kind of create an environment where police could go in during Pride Week, during the Gay Pride Parade, and come in and do a huge sweep of anybody who is just standing on a corner because they fall into their perception of what a prostitute is. You write that similar laws in California, New York, and Washington, D.C. have also long been the subject of controversy and challenges, claiming that they facilitate profiling and discriminatory and abusive enforcement. How do these kinds of supposedly anti-prostitution laws encourage abusive enforcement and what kinds of abuse? Across the country, the statistics show that uh, loitering laws like this, whether they're loitering for purposes of prostitution, gang-related loitering, narcotics-related loitering, are disproportionately enforced against black and brown people. So in New York, the loitering law there is being challenged as unconstitutional because 85% of the people who are arrested under it are black and Latina in a city that's only just over half in black and Latina. In North Carolina, there have been studies that have shown that uh, enforcement of street-based prostitution laws disproportionately affect black women. Uh, in Chicago, those statistics are out there. In Washington, D.C., those statistics are out there. So across the country, it's clear that this kind of statute facilitates uh, racial profiling and racially discriminatory enforcement. Then once you have deemed that anyone standing on a street corner um, who a police officer deems to be, you know, engaged in behavior that they think they can 
uh, argue is prostitution-related, then that person is automatically criminalized. And once someone is criminalized, then that gives police, you know, a lot of leeway to engage in in all kinds of um, use of force and other kinds of violence. And so um, statistics show that, for instance, in Chicago, 30% of people who are arrested on prostitution-related offenses have experienced physical violence from police officers. Um, 20% of folks who say in the sex trade in Chicago who said that they had been raped said that the rapist was a police officer. Studies of young women in the sex trade in Chicago say that police are the primary source of violence that they experience, like far greater rates of violence reported by police than by pimps and traffickers and the people that supposedly police are out there to protect them from. Um, And in uh, D.C., where a very similar law was repealed in 2014 after um, the city's own attorney general said that it was probably unconstitutional, one in five uh, trans women in D.C. said that enforcement of this law often involved officers approaching them and extorting sex in exchange for not arresting them under the law. So it's creating opportunities for racial profiling, for physical violence, for sexual violence and sexual extortion um, in ways, in, in rates that are not insignificant, um, and that increase for black women, that increase for trans women, that increase for young women. You're right. Chicago lawmakers can't claim they don't know how the people arrested under the new law who are actually trading sex to survive are going to have to earn the money to pay these fines. As you were mentioning earlier, that's likely going to be through sex. They also can't claim not to know that the law, by giving officers considerable discretion and mandating a five-day jail sentence on a second arrest, exposes people in the sex trade to more violence. Why aren't those kinds of inducements to get out of or never get into sex work, why don't they work? Why doesn't the fear of physical abuse in jail or the fear of heavy fines help uh, keep people from sex work? Because the demands that are driving people into trading sex um, are demands for food and shelter and income and clothing and health care and gender-affirming health care and mental health care and basic survival needs. I've I've been involved in a number of studies of people in the sex trades, and when you ask people why they're trading sex or what they're trading sex for, overwhelmingly, it's to put food in their stomachs and put uh, a roof over their head and clothes on their back and to meet other basic needs. And so um, arresting people, finding them, locking them up is doing nothing to meet those needs. In fact, it's pushing them further from being able to meet them themselves because once you have a, an arrest that has the name prostitution in it or the word prostitution in it, you can be barred from public housing. You can lose your children. You can lose your job. You can lose your ability to get certain kinds of jobs. You can, if you're locked up on this law, makes it um, on a second offense mandatory that you be locked up in Cook County Jail for five days. Well, then if you had a shelter bed, you're going to lose it in those five days. So actually what this is doing is pushing folks further into having no choice but to trade sex to meet survival needs, um, which they're already doing to meet those needs. And so when folks talk about these kinds of laws deterring people from being involved in sex trades, they're ignoring what we know from people who are involved, um, which is that they just drive people further in because they close off other options and impose fines and fees that they have no other way of paying. And 
So it's really just that's why we're like, this is just the wrong-headed, ill-advised solution to the problem, no matter how you define the problem, uh, whether you define the problem as poverty, whether you define the problem as violence against people in the sex trade, whether you define the problem as uh, trafficking, no matter which way you look at it, this is the, the opposite of a solution. This is creating, furthering the problem, making people more vulnerable to exploitation and abuse, more vulnerable to police abuse, more vulnerable to economic instability, um, and more vulnerable to just all forms of violence. When I hear these kind of counterproductive uh, policies that just don't seem to make sense, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but uh, every time I just think, well, this is because it's politically motivated, because somebody believes that if they support this kind of ordinance, they will win votes in their community, and that way they can be reelected. How much do you think this is driven by electoral politics and not security or safety for the neighborhood, that this is just Alderman trying to win a few votes before November election time. I mean, I think that's a huge motivation. I think that certainly they're not thinking of people who are trading sex to survive as their constituency, right? They're not thinking of those people as members of their community. They're thinking, and many of the aldermen who, who promoted this bill make it clear that they think of people who are doing what they have to do to survive as people who need to leave their communities. They want to chase them out of them physically. And um, without a thought to what they might need or where they might go or, or the needs that they're out there trying to meet. And that, to me, um, just indicates just not actually caring about the communities you represent. And also just being short-sighted in, in the solutions that you're offering to communities, that you're not saying to communities, what what could we collectively do together to ensure that the needs of everyone in this community um, are met so that we're, we're all able to enjoy income, housing, employment, opportunity to fulfill our human potential, and public space in ways that are um, generative and conducive to the health and safety of the entire community. I feel like the west side of Chicago is a place where I've long heard about, and there's many books out about, there's a, a really good one called The War on Neighborhoods that just came out, that talk about the sort of systemic, structural, decades-long, organized abandonment of those communities that now the solution, the very short-sighted, short-term, ill-advised solutions that people are offering are just about criminalizing further and further and further those neighborhoods and those residents um, and denying them economic investment in the things that they need. And they're they're currently organizing to say, we don't need a police training academy in our community. We need that $95 million to be spent on the things that we need, and here are the things that we need. But I feel like the politicians can always get votes by locking more people up, um, by advancing what's known as law and order agendas, and, and always sort of dive for that short-sighted solution um, instead of really thinking about the long-term health and safety and growth and um possibilities for all the people who are their constituents and members of their communities. Uh, that book, War on Neighborhoods, sounds really good. And now I'm going to tell my producer, Alex, write down War on Neighborhoods as a possible guest on the show in the future. So there was also an article, the same day that your article was posted at Truthout, again, your article at truthout.com, prostitution-related loitering ordinance promotes racial profiling in Chicago. And we're speaking with attorney Andrea J. Ritchie, who is co-author of that article. And you can find out more about Andrea at andreajritchie.com. That's R-I-T-C-H-I-E. Same day that article came out, there was an article at the Chicago Reporter by Nikki Beim and Jonah Newman. I believe I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. And in that article, they write, data analyzed by the Chicago Reporter shows that Chicago police are still much more likely to arrest women for selling sex than men for buying it. 90% of all prostitution-related arrests in Chicago last year were connected 
to selling sex compared with just 8%. So I don't know what the other 2% are, with uh, just 8% for buying sex, according to a reporter analysis of Chicago Police Department data. To you, what explains why only the sex worker is arrested and rarely the buyer? And does does this reveal to you something about how the police view sex work and sex workers as well as their clients? I, I think it's about the person with the least power in the situation being the one who's targeted for criminalization usually is, is one part of it. And I think this is why anti-trafficking advocates um, like Assemblywoman Amy Pollan in New York State have introduced legislation to repeal the loitering for purposes of prostitution law, because what she's recognizing is that to the extent that people are involved in the sex trade through coercion, um, that these kinds of laws mean that they're the ones who are getting subjected to further violence and further criminalization through uh, enforcement of anti-loitering laws um, like this one, like the one that was just passed in Chicago. What I do want to say, though, is that... um, the the real issue here is meeting the needs that people who are trading sex have. And um, I'm not as concerned about who's getting arrested as opposed to, um, I don't I don't think arresting more people is the answer. I think the answer is meeting the needs that people have um, and making sure that they have access to safety, that they have access to um, housing, that they have access to food, they have access to things that they need and to um, protection from everyone in our communities. And that's the concern that I have more than sort of um, increasing penalties for for activities that you know people are engaged in to survive. To what extent will this kind of anti prostitution ordinance that <clears throat> Chicago is implementing? To what extent will it criminalize uh, transgender women of color wherever they get together, where they congregate, clubs, coffee houses, wherever? Will this incentivize landlords and businesses to not allow a transgender woman of color? Uh, you know, even a crowd, uh, even one or even a crowd on their property because it will be targeted by police as a potential place of prostitution. Well, the thing about the this ordinance is that the superintendent can declare any area of the city to be an area where this ordinance will be aggressively enforced. Um, they're supposed to, the superintendent is supposed to do that in consultation with members of the community, um, and that would mean presumably all members of the community, including the people who would be targeted by enforcement, um, and and people who care about the health and safety of um, all members of communities, including people who are trading sex to survive. And um, unfortunately, the ordinance does not require the superintendent to make public the location where this is being enforced. So basically, you could be standing on a corner and not know that it's an aggressive enforcement neighborhood. But we know that... Um, you know, that in other cities, these kinds of ordinances are aggressively enforced in areas where, like in New York City, um, Jackson Heights, where Latina trans women um, live in the West Village, an area where Black and Latina queer youth um, hang out and have historically hung out since the 60s, since Stonewall, um, and other areas and communities where Black women um, and women of color live and, and exist and work and survive and raise their families and support themselves. And so... Um, even though the location where it's going to be enforced will be secret unless we're successful in, in making the superintendent uh, come public about it and do public consultations about enforcement of this law, um, then we won't know where they'll be enforced, but we know that who will be targeted just based on historical experience. And you write that several studies over the past decade have found high rates of physical and sexual violence by police officers, as you were mentioning, enforcing prostitution laws in Chicago for immigrants. Enforcement of the new law represents another potential pathway to being swept up into Trump's deportation machine. 
between the gang ba- database, which we have discussed on our show in the past, and now the prostitution ordinance, how complicit is Mayor Rahm Emanuel, whether that was his intention or the intentions of his policies or not, how complicit is Mary Emanuel in what you call Trump's deportation machine? I think that passage of this kind of ordinance and all the other loitering and uh, related ordinances definitely undermines any assumption or assertion that this is a sanctuary city. We are not living in a sanctuary city where anyone standing on a street corner can be picked up under the pretext that a police officer thought they might be standing there with the purpose of engaging in prostitution. Um, And for many immigrant women, um, the fact that you could later try and make another claim that you were coerced into doing it or that, you know, you qualify for asylum or that there's some other basis under which you could avoid deportation will come way too late because by then you're in the criminal legal system and, and that charge in and of itself bars you from accessing many immigration remedies. So the, the short answer to your question is there's no way that Rahm Emanuel or Chicago City Council can call itself with a straight face a sanctuary city when it has given the police um, more tools to just round up anyone uh, under the flimsiest of pretexts, arrest them, and charge them with an offense that puts them into the deportation machine and denies them access to immigration remedies. So a very similar anti-prostitution law in New York has, is now being opposed by anti-trafficking advocates. Why are anti-trafficking advocates opposing the anti-prostitution law in New York that is similar to the one we are about to have here in Chicago? For precisely the reasons we've been talking about, because people um, who are experiencing forced violence exploitation, coercion in the sex trade are being picked up under the ordinances and being uh, subjected to further violence and exploitation and uh, in the criminal legal system and by police officers. And because they realize that it's not doing anything to address the forces that are driving um, uh, violence against people in the sex trades, whether it's trafficking or other forms of violence. And they just realize it's subjecting people to more violence um, through arresting criminalization. So in New York City, the lawsuit um, that is challenging the loitering ordinance is being brought by the Legal Aid Society, but was initiated by a unit that works with survivors of trafficking um, to defend them against the criminal charges that are often brought against them. And the legislator who introduced the state bill to repeal the law that's being challenged um, is also a longtime anti-trafficking advocate who recognizes that that this kind of enforcement, these kinds of laws are doing harm to people um, who are experiencing other forms of harm. Just a couple more questions for you. Uh, So I guess my, well, will this ordinance likely fail in the courts as others have? And even if it does fail in the courts, even if all of a sudden it's determined to be unconstitutional, even if, you know, public money, millions of dollars in public money go to defending this ordinance and instead it fails, even putting that kind of uh, public money loss aside, how much damage can it do before the challenges are brought and it does lose in the court of law? A tremendous amount of damage because it has given police officers tool to wield, um, to uh, harass, to arrest, to extort sex from, um, to engage in use of force against um, black women, Latino women, Asian women, women of color, immigrant women, trans women, queer women in Chicago. And so each 
person's life can be dramatically changed by a police encounter that's facilitated by this ordinance. They can lose shelter. They can lose their children. They can lose a job. They can lose um, public assistance. They can be deported into, you know, and their entire life, the entire course of life could be changed by an arrest under this ordinance. So the damage that can be done is severe and can happen immediately. And it takes a long time for these legal challenges to win their way through courts. Um, I, I personally believe this ordinance is very susceptible to constitutional challenge. I um, also know that a lot of harm will be done uh, by officers enforcing this ordinance and by the criminalization of people trying to survive that this ordinance will um, facilitate and and the harm that people experience, not just in the process of arrest, but also in the process of incarceration at, at Cook County Jail, um, that damage is untold. I mean, someone losing custody of their child or losing um, housing or or being deported is, is immeasurable harm. And it's something that I really urge um, people to think about when they're thinking about enforcing this ordinance, when they're thinking about whether to actually repeal this ordinance and undo this mistake. Um, we wish that uh, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel had vetoed the ordinance when he had the opportunity to in order to sort of reverse course uh, on this bill. I mean, Chicago is moving backwards where other uh, jurisdictions are recognizing the harms of these kinds of ordinances. And so we really um, hope that the superintendent will uh, consult with people before beginning enforcement and hopefully um, decline to enforce it and that you know, someone will will repeal it, um, but that we that we will not go down a path where we have to wait for a constitutional challenge to be successful because too many lives are at stake and too many lives will be harmed in the interim. We have been speaking with attorney Andrea J. Ritchie, co-author with community organizer Bridge Schulte of the Truthout.com article, Prostitution-Related Loitering Ordinance, Ordinance Promotes Racial Profiling in Chicago. You can find out more about Andrea at Andrea J. Ritchie, R-I-T-C-H-I-E dot com. You can follow her on Twitter at Drea, NYC, one, two, three. One last question for you, Andrea, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Ah, but this question isn't all that hellish. How would life in Chicago change would it be any less safe or less secure or, or, you know, more safe or more secure if prostitution was legal? I think the key is to make not just necessarily legalize, but to decriminalize. And I think that decriminalization, where it has taken place in places like New Zealand, um, has found that the city and or the country in that case is safer. It's safer because people who are engaged in the sex trade for whatever reason are able to come forward when they experience harm or exploitation or abuse because they don't risk arrest by coming forward and saying, hey, this person is trafficking me, this person is hurting me, this client raped me, this police officer attacked me. They don't risk being criminalized themselves by coming forward and talking about the circumstance in which that happened. And so trafficking has gone down, violence against people in the sex trades has gone down in places that have decriminalized prostitution. And that have recognized the forces, the demand, the actual demands that are driving involvement in the sex trade, which are for income, housing, meeting basic needs, and have invested in meeting those needs instead of investing in locking people up and pushing them through a revolving war of the criminal legal system that pushes them further and further into poverty and and circumstances that lead them to be vulnerable to exploitation. So places that have decriminalized, not legalized, but just decriminalized, have taken away the stigma, taken away... Um, the tools of policing and criminalization and have instead invest them in meeting the needs of communities and of people um, who are trying to survive in them. And that, to me, is the way to go. 
Andrea, really a pleasure having you on the show. And now that I have your email address, I'll be bugging you in the future to have you back on. That's attorney J. Andrea J. Ritchie, co-author with community organizer Britt Schulte of the truthout.com article, Prostitution-Related Loitering Ordinance Promotes Racial Profiling in Chicago. Andrea's latest book is Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. You can find out more about Andrea at her website, andreajritchie.com, and follow her on Twitter at DreaNYC123. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thanks so much for having me for covering this issue. I really appreciate it. Take care. Live from lands stolen from the natives, this is Hell. We'll wrap up this week's This is Hell with a moment of truth. Jeff, wherein Jeff Dorchin ponders outliving his own usefulness. The best way for you to get the word out about This is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This is Hell has a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to Julie, Jess, Greg, Fergus, Jeffrey, Patrick, Jason, and Nick for sharing our announcement that Boots Riley would be on today's show. And if you didn't hear that interview, you can go to thisishell.com and listen to the podcast in a couple of hours when Alex posts it. There were a ton of people who shared our interview with Walter Scheidel on how only violence and catastrophe have brought about equality in human history, but only an Archimedia had the courage to actually publicly share that interview. The other 15 people did not. Thanks to Howard, Paula, James, Michael, Tri, Graham, Kareem, and Patrick for sharing our interview with ESPN's Howard Bryant on the NFL's kneeling policy and the corporatization and militarization of the U.S. sports industry. And you can hear that interview by going to thisishell.com right now and going back to last week's show. And thanks to Tom, Wiley, and Curly for sharing This Is Hell this week. Thanks to all of you for sharing This Is Hell, however you share the show, whether it's on Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud. All right, anything else I wanted to mention here? Oh, yeah, real quick. You can now become a supporter of This Is Hell via Patreon. If you become a regular Patreon supporter, not only will we show our appreciation by sending you some This Is Hell advertising stickers, but you'll also have access to special perks, including every week getting a classic interview from our back catalog of 20-plus years of on-air conversations selected by me with a new up-to-date introduction on why I selected that interview for our Patreon supporters. And in the future, you'll get additional bonus gifts at thisishell.com when you click on support. And also, if you're a Patreon supporter, then you'll be able to hear the Wesley Willis uh, interview or the Wesley Willis show that Alex posted this week because every other week he posts some other wacky thing from our back catalog. On this week's Patreon podcast that you can hear right now by signing up to Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Uh, that's patreon.com slash this is hell. This week we played our October 20th, 2007 interview with historian Cynthia Stokes Brown, author of Big History, From the Big Bang to the Present. At the time, Cynthia was one of like a dozen big historians, that is historians who wanted to look at all of history from a bigger perspective that includes an understanding and an application of every discipline over all time. So if you want to hear that interview about the big history picture, including the fact that we're in the midst of the biggest transformation since agriculture. All you have to do is become a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell. And we want to thank those people who are already signed up for this is hell this week. Uh, we had a few more people sign up. Robert A, Greg J, Rob D, John F, Robert P, Mara H, Matthew M, and Brandon S. You can now join them and another like 263 listeners in supporting this is hell by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell on next week's Patreon podcast. If you sign up now, you'll be able to hear this next week. 
because he has some new book out on Marxism or Marx or something like that. We'll play our June 17th, 2006 interview. I think this was our first interview with him, with Mike Davis. Up to that point, Mike had written such soon-to-be classics as Planet of Slums, Prisoners of the American Dream, City of Quartz, Ecology of Fear, Magical Urbanism, Late Victorian Holocaust, great movie, and Dead Cities. But again, you can only hear that if you subscribe to us via Patreon at patreon.com. Slash This Is Hell. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. Your support will be needed more than ever as dissent continues to be shunned by the establishment corporate mainstream media. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, we'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell with a moment of truth wherein Jeff Dorchin ponders outliving his own usefulness. That stuff, but, and we also got some people to thank for supporting This Is Hell. We might get back into listener feedback. All depends on how much time we have left when Jeffy's done. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell, and Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, zero. Things fall apart, or they don't. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Talking with some of the regulars at Lily's Coffee at the Laurel Canyon Country Store Monday morning, I was led to an epiphany of sorts. You know how I love my epiphanies. We were talking about how pet philosophies seem to wear out their usefulness after a while. Obviously, this isn't something that troubles philosophers who spend their lives developing their thought shenanigans, but for those of us groping through the fever of our lives, merely splashing our faces with philosophies here and there, who don't have the time or desire to dive deep into the currents of thought, for us a thought pool like existentialism or stoicism, used as a handy refresher of perspective skimmed off the surface of better thinkers' deeper explorations, well, we go through these like wet wipes, because... We're not plumbing the depths of ideas. We're busy working and sweating and eating spare ribs or barely eating anything and getting all sloppy, and we just want something to wipe off the day's accretion of schmutz. Whenever I think I've got the tiger by the tail and keep swinging that tiger around, knocking obstacles out of my way day after day, I eventually find the tiger doesn't swing the way it used to. My grip on the tail loosens out of habit or maybe lack of mindfulness, and the tiger itself becomes emaciated and moth-eaten. Eventually, I'm holding nothing by the tail. The tail itself has dissolved. The obstacles don't comply, and they're different somehow. The landscape has changed. Finding a new tiger doesn't help. Can't get the same grip. It's just no good swinging tigers anymore. As with mental constructs, so with systems and objects in the material world. After many a strike, the subtle rotation of the wrist no longer gets the bowling ball into the pocket. Musical styles begin to wear on the nerves. The car wears out and croaks a dusty death. To a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but everything isn't a nail. It never was. That way of seeing only stood the hammer in good stead temporarily. Approaches and equipment need to be refreshed and renewed. Amish Tripathi is an Indian author of adventure fiction known best for his first series of books, the Shiva Trilogy. He asserts that the initial novel, The Immortals of Malua, began as a treatise on the nature of evil. How did the Immortals of Malua become immortal? Easy. They drank the Somras, the elixir of immortality. 
The Somrus was discovered in an earlier age, but the Maluans figured out how to manufacture it. In manufacturing it, though, they polluted the rivers and created an underclass of monsters with whom they refused to share either their Somrus or the bounty being immortal brought. They also took all the good land and diverted the polluted rivers into the underclass areas. It's all this big-ass allegory, although for Amish Tripathi, it's also a truth based on his Shaiva Bhakti beliefs. A cosmic principle emerges from the history of the Somras. Anything, no matter how good at the beginning, becomes evil eventually. By their nature, people keep doing what once worked over and over, even after it stops working, like democracy in the United States. It's not something you can tweak and fix. Eventually, the thing is so broken and has accumulated so much evil that it must simply be destroyed and a new system or ambrosia or source of wisdom or energy be found. In the Hindu stories of the sourcing of the Amrita, the immortality elixir, the asuras, or demons, are tricked out of receiving the Amrita. So even in the original history, the Somras or equivalent thereof, was derived in an unjust way. Let's say capitalism is our somers today, and the system has accumulated so much negativity as to be all but useless, except to the minority of humans amassing immense wealth. This is a simplistic analogy, but as always with these epiphanies, bear with me. Capitalism was born out of colonialism and mercantilism, and some of its earlier negative features were wars of conquest and slavery, negative features which have continued to this day, it turns out, conceived in injustice and accumulating injustice. But what if it was the very injustice that was the system? It certainly seems that civilization was created on the backs of slaves and workers built on their corpses. Historically and prehistorically, some small arrogant class of people has always managed to figure out how to profit absurdly at the expense of everyone else. It began long before Homer sang, before Gilgamesh sought Enkidu, before the three sovereigns and five emperors, before the Polynesians set sail to discover their islands. A subgroup of any larger civic entity will select a special person to declare their loyalty to, defend that person's or family's designation of specialness, and enforce it on others. And maybe there was at one time something excellent about the special persons. Genghis Khan was an excellent horseman, apart from his prodigious horniness, charisma, and enthusiasm for violence. Or perhaps there were better horsemen. What he excelled at most was raising armies. Each generation felt they had found the best measure of merit according to which they would hoist one or another person to a throne. Kings deserved the throne because God had chosen them. Popes, the same. Caliphs and emperors had valor or skill in war. In the mercantile age, the cleverest, most risk-taking, and luckiest traders and investors accumulated their merit in the form of coin. But I think we can see... From the current leadership all over the world, that merit has little or nothing to do with where in the social hierarchy one finds oneself. The top people today suck at being people, much less leaders. God, they're worthless. All they do is suck up wealth and hoard it in their unconscionable oodles and scads. From where did the notion come of rewarding meritorious people with material goods anyway. Aren't honors enough? Isn't the adoration of the public enough? Do you really require more and better food, housing, education, and medical care than someone unlovable and disinclined to swordsmanship or software design? 
Perhaps there was a shortage of the necessities of life at one time, but now there's not. And if there were, we're ingenious enough to fix it. I understand rewarding people with awards and affection, but cheese, carrots, linen, plaster, floorboards? How many floorboards does a nurse merit? And how many does a brain surgeon merit? And how much education does the child of a shipping magnet merit versus the child of a garbage collector? I suppose at one time... Material incentives spurred on inventors and rewarded the clever along with the undeserving but lucky. Today, though, I'm pretty sure that anyone who has a roof over their head is luckier, not better, than someone who doesn't. I don't see them meriting the roof more than the roofless. And in any case, it is entirely within our power to house everyone if people like, say, an Arizona senator would give up six or seven of his houses but I don't imagine for a second that we'll pry the property of those with too much from their fists, not even their cold, dead fists. What I imagine is that we have exhausted this moronic system of often arbitrary rewards, and it's really just running on fumes, albeit a whole lot of fumes. Those who would never think to deny the hungry their right to eat, or the workers their rights to organize for better conditions, are on the verge of losing all patience with those for whom it seems so important to withhold help to the unlucky. It's just, just tiresome. Stop making the situation worse. That's where we'd like to start, at least. But even the middle and lower classes massacring the upper would be just a tweak to the age-old evil system of grotesque accumulation at the cost of lethal poverty. The evils of the old system always seem to be replicated in the new one. The advent of the corporation, the sole purpose of which is to accumulate wealth and grow to a size so inconceivable that human beings can no longer correct its destructive behavior, seems to have brought civilization to this intolerable condition where an army of people and machines under the banner of Exxon or Cargill or Chase Bank takes commands from their abstract beast which only desires to eat and grow regardless of the damage it does. The transnational corporation is the idea of the king of old, grown pathologically huge and mindlessly voracious. Eventually, we're just not going to do that anymore, I guess. Not take commands from the obese demons. Maybe a new reflex will be born in us from the ashes of the world we're destroying. A reflex that causes us, when we see a subgroup of us lifting some sparkly young Turk just a little higher than is reasonably justified, to put a stop to that somehow. I know it's hard to stop a bunch of slavish jerks when they get started, especially when the chump king they've created makes of them an aristocracy, which of course requires a police force to protect them, but... If it really is possible for this system, grown so evil, to die, however violently, it will require a different set of reflexes, at the very least, to initiate something truly different in its aftermath. Or maybe it will always be this way. Mediocre systems created through injustice will seem to be benefiting most people or be advertised that way, then little by little the people they don't benefit will become more visible, the system will reveal itself to be ever more insupportable, top-heavy with wealth concentrated in a worthless class of bloated leeches who marry themselves to obese abstract shark demons and ravenous robots, that top-heaviness will swell to a hideous and comical size and explode in flames from its own gaseous inflation and come crashing down on top of the hapless mortals below burying us. Then again, maybe there's always been pretty much the same level of misery ever since the world began. I'm not wedded to the system outliving its usefulness idea. 
Maybe that idea itself has outlived its usefulness. I'm flexible. It's reality, after all. There aren't really rules, just circumstances that change and lives that struggle and dance and taper off to a quiet end. This has been the moment of truth. Good day! All right, Jeffy, we're up against the clock, so I got to get out of here. Who loves you? I do. That's who. I love you, too. All right, stay beautiful. I also love the taste of Novichok. All right, then. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell at thisishell.com, then click on support. There's a couple of ways you can support this is hell at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can become a Patreon subscriber, or you can simply check out the free gifts we have on offer to donors at differing premium levels. And as of tomorrow, we'll be having our new coffee mug up there, a new t-shirt, a new tote bag, a new ceramic mug, a new tin mug. So go to this is hell.com and click on support to see it all. We want to thank a couple of people for supporting this is hell this week. And thanks this week goes out to the religious-like tithing support of Daniel and Magnificent Me. Let's see what else I wanted to mention. Oh, we're already at 59. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever. If you missed last Saturday's anniversary and listener appreciation party, let me just tell you a couple things that happened there. Uh, towards the end of, an, of the night, a guy showed up with a stack of random pizzas and started selling them at very discount rates. So they might have fallen off a truck. I have no idea. But that happened, and so I got a pizza. And then as I was devouring that, somebody came up to me. As I, it, Actually, I just finished eating the pizza, and I'm walking out the door, and a guy came up to me and goes, Hey, I got an extra bacon cheeseburger. You want it? What are you, a dealer or something? He goes, no, no, I bought three. I ate one, gave away the other, and I want you to have the third one because this is your party. So then I got a random burger from somebody I didn't know. That's the kind of thing that was happening last week at the party. But if you did miss that party and you want to see the This Is Art art show, you can drop by any Saturday or Sunday from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon and check out the Art Upstairs and Second Story Studios I'll be there tomorrow, Sunday, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. That's the This Is Art Art Show with open gallery hours every Saturday and Sunday from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. through Sunday, September 2nd. And you can go see the art of Luke Brecken, Ian Lance, Julie Murphy, Laddie Odom, Vicky Jaguli, and Ron Pollard. We have links to all those people somewhere at our website. But go check out Ron Pollard's work work at We Kill Everything. Vicky Jaguli's at Honey Bee Art. Uh, check out Laddie Odom's at laddieodom.wordpress.com. Julie Murphy's art is at juliemurphy.info. And Ian Lance's work is at ianlance.com. Uh, okay, Alex, who's on next week's show? Uh, next week, Lillian Calais Barger. Mikal's Barger. I should probably even learn that pretty before next week. Uh, who wrote the book, The World Come of Age, an Intellectual History of Liberation Theology. And also, as we do every time to send you off on vacation, uh, Michael Roper will be on to talk about beer industry. And then also, I think Flint Taylor. I got to get back in touch with him, but I think Flint will be back on, too. Yeah, we also got an email this week I just want to mention real quick from Terry, who wrote to us at Chuck at com. The audience. Boots. Boots. Secretary. Pounding on the subscribe button. Boots. 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 
Well, thanks for cheering, Terry, and your secretary. Without your vocal support, we would never have had Boots Riley, the filmmaker behind Sorry to Bother You, on our show earlier today. I want to thank the people who did appear on this week's show, Andrea J. Ritchie, co-author with Community Organizer, uh, Britt Schulte of the Truth Out article, Prostitution-Related Loitering Ordinance Promotes Racial Profiling in Chicago. Find out more about Andrea at andreajritchie.com. Thanks to C. Riley Snorton. Riley is the author of the award-winning book, Black on Both Sides, A Radical History of Trans Identity. Find out, uh, or you can follow Riley on Twitter at C. Riley, R-I-L-E-Y, Snorton. Thanks to Victor Wallace, author of Red Green Revolution, The Politics and Technology of Eco-Socialism. Find out more about Victor at Victor Wallace. That's W-A-L-L-I-S dot com. Thanks to Boots Riley for being on our show. He wrote and directed the movie Sorry to Bother You, which is showing up here in Evanston over at the Century on Maple. I know it's showing over at the Logan Theater in Logan Square, but you should just go online and find out where it is showing at your local theater. Just go to sorrytobotheryou.movie. This week's hangover cure was vodka socks. Thanks to Ronaldo for doing Rotten History. Thanks to everybody for dropping by during last week's party. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for doing The Moment of Truth. Thanks to Leo for uh, assisting Alex in producing the show. Thanks to Alex as well. Anybody else I need to thank? Eh, that's about it. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. The only way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show is to sit down in the lotus position. Turn your palms towards the sky. Focus on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and say these simple words... Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Matt Damon. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.